In a typical year, we're often not faced with questions of whether the vote we cast will preserve democracy or put us at risk. But this year we are. This year, I hope you'll make the future of our democracy an important part of your decision to vote and how you vote. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the program. I'm Don Lemon, alongside Poppy Harlow and Caitlin Collins. Can I just say, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. This is down to the wire. Yeah. I mean, this is for all the marbles pretty soon in yeah. just a couple of days. And it's notable that that was the speech President Biden chose. is closing the race on with these final few days to go. Serious. He had his serious voice on there. Uh, that was President Joe Biden putting democracy front and center and warning about the dangers of election deniers. The question is, though, is this the right closing message for his party? We're going to talk about that. If it's all the marbles, it better be better if he be, wants right? to win. And former President Trump returns. He will make his closing pitch to voters tonight in Iowa, of course, as he stokes talk of another presidential bid. We're live on the ground in Sioux City. Plus. Bouncing ball in game four of the World Series last night, you saw something that you had not seen since 1956. The Houston Astros shutting down the Phillies. What four pitchers did that made baseball history. When she said you haven't seen since 1956, she looked at me. <laughs> I was not here She's in 1956. Of my eye. Neither was Poppy, so don't look this way, Caitlin Collins. Some people have not seen it since right. 1956. We're going to begin, though, with the final stretch. With five days left before the midterms, the president heads out west today. He's going to be campaigning with New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham uh, as keeping control of Congress is the president's top priority. But... The White House is also laser-focused on getting Democratic governors across the finish line. We're going to begin this morning with MJ Lee live for us uh, at the White House. Good morning to you, MJ. And there goes that weed whacker again. Sorry about that. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so okay, President uh, Biden is yeah. focused on defending democracy here. Is that the right message at a time when you know, most voters are saying that their top issue uh, is the economy and inflation? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right that there is no issue more important for voters right now than inflation and economy. Uh, the issue of protecting democracy ranks pretty low when it comes to top concerns for voters heading into next week. But what we heard from the president last night was trying to make clear that what we are confronting right now is so much bigger than politics. He said, this isn't about me. This isn't about the last 2020 election. It isn't about even next week's election. This is about the future of the country. Now, it was really notable that he started his speech by describing in pretty graphic detail this violent attack against Paul Pelosi. We know that the president and his top advisors were very deeply disturbed by everything that happened there. And we also know that they have been watching with real trepidation and real concern as they have seen these election deniers on ballots. They have seen uh, these candidates who have basically openly said, we're not necessarily going to accept the results of the election next week. And a surge in threats and acts of violence. And the president saying last night that the words that were allegedly used by the attacker on Paul Pelosi, where's Nancy, where's Nancy, that those were the same words used by some of the members of the mob that breached the Capitol on January 6th. Take a listen. This is also the first election since the events of January 6th, when the armed, angry mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. 
I wish, I wish I could say the assault on our democracy had ended that day, but I cannot. As I stand here today, there are candidates running for every level of office in America, for governor, Congress, attorney general, secretary of state, who won't commit, they will not commit to accepting the results of elections that they're running in. This is a path to chaos in America. It's unprecedented. It's unlawful. And it's un-American. Now, in this final stretch, the president today heads out to uh, New Mexico, where he is going to campaign for Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. You know, so much of the focus heading into the midterms has been about House and Senate races and can Democrats keep Congress. But there is a lot of focus, too, on keeping uh, for Democrats on keeping these uh, governor's mansions blue, because these are the people, remember, that sort of hold the key to enacting uh, and uh, and implementing the president's agenda heading into the next two years. Guys. MJ Lee at the White House this morning. MJ, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Of course, the economy is at the top of everybody's mind. A little bit later on, there's a new CNN report that we want you to see. A lot of people still can't find a job despite all the openings. What's going on with that? And what can you do if you are one of those people? Right now, let's go to Iowa this morning, where former President Donald Trump is set to headline a rally today for Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, also Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. His visit is also fueling more speculation about what he is going to do about 2024. Jeff Zeleny joins us live on the trail for CNN this morning in Sioux City, a wonderful city waiting for the sun to come up. So what's the former president going to say there today? What's he trying to do? Well, good morning, Poppy. I mean, President Trump, of course, has been holding rallies throughout the year, but this, I'm told, is the start of something quite different. He'll be doing four rallies in five days, beginning tonight here in Iowa, then traveling to Pennsylvania, Florida, and Ohio before Election Day on Tuesday. And yes, he's trying to rally Republicans for the midterm elections next week, but I'm told he's also trying to remind Republicans that he indeed is the leader of the party. In fact, his advisors say the entire midterm elections are resting on his shoulders. What that means is he's trying to take some credit for what they believe are, you know, some Republican optimism out here that we're seeing um, in the minds of candidates and voters as well. So certainly inserting himself at the end of this race, Poppy. And I think it's interesting he's not the only sort of big name Republican to go to Iowa in recent days. Who else? Exactly. I mean, it's been a year since Donald Trump has been here in Iowa. And why Iowa? Of course, it begins the beginning of the presidential race uh, a year from now. So this is uh, one reason he's coming. But I'm told that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, of course, is also eyeing a 2024 bid, he is eyeing a trip to Iowa as well and likely to come sometimes after his expected reelection next week. But also a former Vice President Mike Pence has been here several times this year. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, many senators. The list goes on and on. But tonight here in Sioux City, Donald Trump is going to remind people that he, too, is on that list. Of course, his decision will come at some point in the coming weeks. Poppy. Jeff Zeleny, live for us in Sioux City. Jeff, thank you so much. And ahead, we are going to be joined by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who knows about this final push very well, why she thinks it is crucial for people to vote this election, as you said, Don, all the, all the marbles, right? Yeah. And to be sure, tune in right here next Tuesday for CNN special election coverage. It all begins at 4 o'clock Eastern. In light of the recent attack on Speaker Pelosi's 82-year-old husband, we're seeing political violence loom over the midterm elections. A voicemail death threat sent to State Senator Darren Bailey, the Republican candidate for governor in Illinois. According to police, this voicemail said, quote, I'm going to skin Darren Bailey alive, making sure he is still alive, 
and screaming in effing pain. I know where he lives. I know where he sleeps. I know where his kids sleep. Yeah, that's right. So he better kill himself. And if he doesn't, I am going to kill him. The Chicago man who made that voicemail, 21-year-old Scott Lennox, has been charged with multiple felonies for allegedly sending it. Bailey's Democratic opponent, who is the incumbent governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, responded to the threat, tweeting, quote, the violent rhetoric and division that we are seeing across our country is unacceptable, a message that was echoed by President Biden last night in his speech. Also this morning, CNN has obtained another heart-wrenching call from inside a classroom during the elementary school massacre in Uvalde, Texas at Robb Elementary. This call coming from Maya Cirillo, the fourth grader, who was injured when she reached out for help, making multiple phone calls to police. This, of course, follows on the call that we heard from Chloe Torres yesterday after we spoke with her parents as well about what it was like to listen to their 10-year-old daughter repeatedly call 911 for help, and that help did not come for 40 minutes. CNN crime and justice correspondent Shimon Prokupes joins us now. Shimon, good morning. I mean, Thanks for joining us on this. I know that this is something you've been covering so closely. You were the first one to let Chloe's parents yesterday actually listen to those, have her listen, have them listen to what their daughter said. Now this other call. Right. And not only that, I got a call last night from a pretty high ranking city state official. There are officials in Texas who have not heard this call. Mm-hmm. And after watching our two days of reporting, I've now realized the brutality of this and are just shocked at how bad this was. It took them to listen to this call to realize how bad this was. They knew these calls existed, but there are so many people who should have listened to this call and have not listened to this call, including these families who have now asked us, they're coming to us and saying, we know you have this information, provide it to us. We want to hear, we need to answer some questions for our kids. Why haven't they heard the call? Because there is a district attorney there who has refused to allow them to listen to this call because of this investigation that she's conducting. She is not allowing certain people to listen to this call. It's infuriating people. It's nonsensical. It is. And this is the problem with this, is that we're now five months, almost six months into this, and all of this information is just now coming out. And it's because people are coming forward to us and saying, get this out there. Mm. This is so bad. And so this is what happened with this mother. Uh, Abigail, she reached out to us after our story yesterday uh, and the day before yesterday, and she asked to listen to the call because her daughter is the other girl on the call, a girl by the name of Mia Cerillo, and she wanted us to play this audio because, again, she's asking for transparency. She wants accountability. And what we did here is we are using the audio because she's given us permission, but we put it together with what the police officers were doing in the hallway in those moments. Take a look. Hello? I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Okay. Is the killer in the building? I'm sorry? Is the killer in the building? Yes, he's still there in the building, so I need you to be quiet and do not open the door until I reach you. Are there officers there? Okay, 
Hold on, hold on. Don't, don't do anything. What was that? I think the officers are in the building. Okay, the officers are in the building, but open the door until I tell you. Okay. Okay, just stay quiet. Okay. I mean, I have chills from listening to that. It's, it goes on and on, right? This call, this one call is 20 minutes. This is 77 minutes that these kids are in this classroom. Um, at one point, we didn't air the gunshots, but you, you, the students are in the classroom, the gunman fires gunshots, the cops can hear the gunshots, yet it takes nearly 30 minutes still, even after the gunshots, for them to go inside that classroom. I mean, these kids are traumatized they for are. life. And I have to say, look, and I, I know that you don't like to hear this, but... If it wasn't for the work that you're it's doing true. there, many of these people would not know this. And this investigation would not be where it is today. So, I mean, I have to commend you on the work that you're doing That's there true. because you're actually helping the people of Uvalde and the American people understand what's going on. No, I appreciate that. And I think it's really starting to hit the community there, how bad. And, and yeah. what's most important that it needs to hit the officials who are going to make these decisions and yeah. need to make changes. And that's starting to happen. And for the families. They're going through hell. Nothing is getting better for them. I, you know, I spoke to uh, Chloe Torres' dad. He texted me last night to thank us. He said the, the reach out has been incredible. And um, they need help. And their kids are not getting any better. Their kids can't go to school. Chloe can't go to school. Because the part of what's happening is that they are being re-victimized. Because every time they think they're going to get to a point where they could get some closure on the investigation, something else happens. Or accountability. accountability. I mean, it's, it's been since May, and it still feels like we do not have the full picture. We don't. Or we a don't. full accounting. We don't. Thank you. Shimon, thank Shimon. you. We know thank you. you. going. Embattled NBA star Kyrie Irving is now owning up to his tweet that promoted a documentary seemed at, that was called anti-Semitic and making a major donation to help eradicate hate as his response. We'll talk more about that. Also, a surge in hate. Even more hate speech on Twitter now since Elon Musk took the reins. We will be right back after this message. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Where is that? Yeah, I can see Poppy's apartment. <laughs> no, you cannot right see Brooklyn. <laughs> no, it's at the top of that building. There's oh, your yeah. penthouse. Oh, yeah. Oh, the blue lights. You know it. top of the Poppy Lemon. Harlow building uh, yes. on Fifth Avenue. PH stands for Penthouse and Popular. That's and hopefully Next to my Trump Tower. Oh, that's exactly right, Don. How did you guys? Hopefully, my yeah, children. No, seriously, that is Hudson Yards, down. the home of CNN. That's where we are. Love it. Hudson. We're waking up, up this morning. Soon. Good morning. <laughs> Here in New York. Good, good morning to you. Good morning, everyone. Okay. Uh, on a serious note, a major move, a major reversal by uh, Kyrie Irving taking responsibility and writing a check following backlash following the NBA star's tweet last week about a documentary. Deemed to be anti-Semitic, Irving and the Nets organization, also with the Anti-Defamation League, have announced that Irving and the Nets will each donate $500,000. And they said, quote, towards organizations that work to eradicate hate. Irving also saying, quote, I'm aware of the negative impact of my post toward the Jewish community. I take responsibility. I do not believe everything said in the documentary was true or reflects my morals and principles. I'm a human being learning from all walks of life. You'll remember Irving had defended his decision to post about the film to his millions of followers, telling reporters on Saturday he's, quote, not going to stand down on anything I believe in. Irving has avoided discipline from the league. Can we hold up one second, yes. one second? You know what I didn't hear there? What? I'm sorry. 
but didn't hear an apology. The I regret it wasn't enough. That was not an apology. Okay. There. So on that point, guys, yeah. let's listen to Charles Barkley. I think the NBA dropped the ball. In what way? Uh, I think he should have been suspended. Uh, I think Adam should have suspended him. First of all, Adam's Jewish. You can't take my $40 million and insult my religion. So you know I don't do any social media. But when you're somebody as great as basketball like him, people are going to listen to you what you say. Hmm? Okay, so here is what the league has said, not mentioning Irving by name. Quote, hate speech of any kind is unacceptable. Runs counter to the NBA's values of equality, inclusion, and respect. Also, this former President Obama, and you pointed this out to us, Don, uh, saying this earlier this week. Let's play it. We've seen just in the last few weeks, whether it's out of malice or ignorance, celebrities just posting up vile anti-Semitic statements on the Internet. And, and, and it gets disseminated. Millions of people log on to that. If you see or read something on the Internet that says some people, certain kinds of people, whether it's, whether it's white or black or immigrant or gay, or Jew, or Muslim. When you see something on the internet that says those people are the cause of your problems, that, that, is, that is a dangerous lie. That is a path that will tear this country apart. And, and so we have to reject that kind of thinking and that kind of rhetoric there should be more people speaking out. Like and, that? Absolutely. And guess what? It should be coming from, um, from both political parties. But you know what drives me crazy is when something like this happens and people, it all, it's the kind of a routine, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. They stand by it. Days go by. They mm -hmm. start to, the backlash grows. Then they apologize and they say they're donating money, yeah. which seems like such an empty gesture. Like, you know, half a million dollars that, he, that he's donating to the ADL. Yeah. I get the point of it, but it just seems like like money cannot fix what Charles Barkley was saying, the platform that you have and the words that you speak and how powerful yeah. that really is. So, listen, uh, can we just put this up again? I am aware of the negative impact of my post towards the Jewish community, and I take responsibility. I do not believe everything said in that documentary was true or reflects my morals and principles. I am human being learning from all walks of life. As I said, I did not hear, I am sorry, I'm wrong. I have learned. And, and I'm, I'm gonna, aware of the impact. I'm aware of the my, impact. It's, I'm sorry you feel that yeah, way. I'm sorry you feel that way. That's what that is. I think the end point. of that statement is good. And it talks about, you know, there is room for grace. And we've talked about that. And having people take accountability for their actions. But I hate when people say the impact of my words. Like, just say what just your say, words I'm were. Sorry. They say my words offended people. I'm sorry. I was wrong. And it's just as simple as that. And, and, and it is what the former president is talking about is very important, especially when you have someone like Elon Musk, who is in control, arguably, of the biggest social media platform, right, Twitter. He promised to free the bird, right, bolster free speech. But since then, there are more reports of a rise in hate speech. Okay, we're going to go through and tell you exactly what's happening here. According to new research by the Network Contagion Research Institute, the use of the N-word jumped nearly 500% in Elon Musk's first 12 hours as CEO. 
Montclair State University published a study that found hate speech was used in more than 4,000 tweets from midnight to noon on October 28th, the day Musk acquired the platform. And on Monday, Twitter came out and admitted that the company's head of safety and integrity said that there was a surge in hateful conduct, adding that 1,500 accounts had been removed from the platform since Saturday. But late last night, the late night talk show host, Jimmy Kimmel, spoke to my colleague, Jake Tapper on CNN. And that, at this point, he said, even posting something nice will be met by a surge of hate. Watch this. I noticed that in the three days that Elon Musk has been running this Twitter, that it has gotten crazier and nastier. I mean, uh, you know, I'm walking in an ALS walk in Las Vegas on Sunday, uh, on my birthday, November 13th, and uh, I posted about it. And thank you. And um, I just got an avalanche of hate, hate. And it's just like, well, you can't even, uh, you can't do anything anymore without being attacked. It is disgusting. Musk also announced that a subscription service for something that is currently free uh, for $8 a month, users can verify their account and, and get the, that coveted blue check mark. Also weighing in on this is a Daily Show host, Trevor Noah. He had a different idea for Musk to cash in on Twitter. Here it is. If Elon Musk wants to make money from Twitter, what he should do, don't charge people for blue check marks. No, you know, charge white people to say the N-word. <laughs> Twitter will be the most profitable company in history. Racists are gonna be taking out loans. And the truth is often spoken in jest and humor, yeah. and I think he's right. It, it is so hateful and so vile. And I noticed at the moment, pretty soon after Elon Musk took over, and you know, I don't really, I'm not the social media type. I actually have someone who helps me with social media so that I don't have to be um, exposed to the toxicity that is Twitter, pretty much. Um, and if you just go on and glance at it, it is disgusting. Something needs to be done about that. Free speech should come with consequences. Does anyone see the irony in you know, free the bird, free speech, but eight bucks if you want the blue check. Yeah, well. Like, what? Like, <laughs> not free to get verified. The New York Times has a great look at this today, which is that, you know, Elon Musk wanted to be this disruptor when he, when he took over Twitter. I mean, and he, this has just happened, so we'll see what the long-term plan is. But he's following a lot of the models that you've seen, Mark Zuckerberg and other, a, a conventional model to this yeah. approach with creating this, you know, content council to moderate that, to make the decision. Not making the decision. By the way, the Facebook content council didn't actually make the decision. They kicked it back to Zuckerberg. Right. It, it's like when you actually are the one in the face of these controversial decisions, people often come You want to own it? Very you wanna, easy. You want to make it private? Get rid of your board? You've got responsibility. Like, that's being an adult running something. So Elon Musk, see what he does with don't it. be a spreader of hate. It's just that easy. Get a hold of your platform. It is hurtful. It is hurting people. That's it. That simple. President Biden turning his focus to, this is tied to this, democracy, right? Democracy, not the economy. So his closing message, not on the economy. Now the Republican Party responding with its own messaging strategy. And there are plenty of jobs out there, but a big question is why are so many Americans still struggling to find one? With only days to go before the midterm elections, President Biden delivered a warning about the threat to democracy as part of his final campaign push. This as vulnerable Democrats are instead spending their ad dollars on the economy and abortion. 
Who is Doug Mastriano? He wants to outlaw and criminalize all abortions. My body, my choice is ridiculous nonsense. You take Tudor Dixon at her word when it comes to outlawing abortion. She's told us exactly who she is. Are you for the exemptions for rape and incest? I am not. Exceptions for rape and incest, or what about health of the mother? No exceptions. Tudor Dixon. That's not acceptable from Michigan. In the meantime, Republican candidates and conservative outlets are instead putting their ads dedicated to crime and the economy. Think crime is bad now? Mandela Barnes would make it worse. Mandela Barnes, wrong on crime, dangerous for Wisconsin. There's just no way anyone can look what's happened in Philadelphia and not feel like we're giving up the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. I came to Kensington today because the biggest, biggest problem I hear in Philadelphia is lawlessness. But as we are in these final days before the midterms, polls show the economy is clearly the biggest issue by a landslide that Americans are saying they are going to vote on. So we will talk about what's behind the messaging of both parties. With us now is CNN senior political analyst John Avalon and CNN political commentator Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Thank you both morning, for being guys. here. Good this morning. John Avalon is here. In the <laughs> house. It's Farrah Griffin is here. It's always the same music and, and the same yeah. voice in those. I always think, <laughs> how can we terrify America? Halloween's <laughs> over, man. But I, I always think that the closing ads are so revealing before yes. an election because uh, despite what you see over the summer, what we saw in August, it's what you see right now that really shows you where everyone is pouring their money into. Anyway. Let's yes. start, though, with President Biden's speech last night. You know, we did economy is the biggest issue. We know that the White House knows that. But they still thought still thought it was a good idea for President Biden to deliver this warning about what he thinks is going to happen if these Republicans who he says won't accept the results of the election are put into office. So President Biden's speech was was valuable. Um, I, the words that he spoke were important. We need people to be speaking out about the threats to democracy. However, Republicans are expected to win in a wave. Most of the candidates that I expect would potentially protest election results like a Kerry Lake, I think, is favored to win. I'm not sure this is an imminent threat in terms of the midterm so much as an existential threat heading into 2024. But here's the problem. Joe Biden's not necessarily the best messenger to make this message. I don't know what Republicans who are on the margins and aren't already aware and concerned about the threats to democracy. I don't see how the needle was moved for them with what Why you said Why is he last the best night. messenger? I, I, okay, so I said this yesterday. I think he needed to call out Democrats putting money behind election deniers. Oh, I yeah. get that them busting, we just played Doug Mastriano, $50 million was put behind election deniers who Democrats would thought, thought would be easier to beat in a general election. That does undermine the message. And Joe Biden's someone who I think could credibly call that out. I would like to see Jake him Jake called that. it out last yeah. night yeah. on the show. Look what happened to Peter Mayer. Do yeah. you think, though, that that resonates with, do you think voters are saying, oh, the Democrats are, they're backing, you know, election deniers. It's a, do you think that even registers with, Mm-hmm. Look, I think it's, it's 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 hypocrisy. I find it infuriating it is, yes. what Democrats did to Peter Meyer, who stood up to Donald Trump, is, right. is you know, is, is unforgivable. That said, you know, you just said, look, you know, it's not urgent. It's existential. <laughs> you know? I, and, I and understand I think, the absurdity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think what, what Democrats are trying to do what is Biden is, look, it's, it, the economy is stupid is always going to be the number one issue, particularly when people are, are feeling the pain of inflation. The ads right now that you're seeing from the two campaigns, how do you understand that? Abortion and crime? They're playing to their base. Right. They're trying to actually rise, rise, the, you know, play to the base to make sure they've got adequate turnout. Yeah. But what Biden and Co are doing, particularly in the wake of Paul Pelosi, is saying, look, 
The danger is not in taking the threats to democracy too seriously. It's taking it too lightly because it is existential. Yeah. And, and, and look, I think as citizens of a self-governing republic, we got to wake up to that fact. Okay, so we're going to have Tim Ryan on running for Senate in Ohio mm -hmm. uh, next hour. We had Alyssa. We had a, yes, Bruce Springsteen. I love that song. We had Alyssa Slotkin on earlier this week. Both of them think their party's gotten it totally wrong on the economy yep. in terms of talking about it. I bet you we'll ask him if he thinks Biden made a mistake with not leading with the economy last night. You think Tim Ryan is an incredibly effective messenger on this. Yeah. What's the why and what's the rest of the party missing? Tim Ryan is the single best communicator on economic issues in the Democratic yeah. Party right now. Here's why. He's, He's a prototypical candidate, Democrat or Republican, willing to stand up to his opponents, That's right. to the He's saying, look, opposition I'm, I'm, media. I'm, He's running, party over, he's running yeah. country over party. He's running on pro-worker, anti-China, and he's focused like a laser beam consistently on middle-class and working-class issues, which, which resonates in particularly in Northeast Ohio. But and he's he voted with, with Biden 100% of the time. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's actually about your, your positioning within with voters and actually the fact he has not been supported by the Democratic Party which I, that, with financially, which I think is malpractice down the stretch, I think actually does give him a degree of freedom. I, he is not going to be a lockstep lefty. He's not. He's a centrist you know, he's a he's sort of a blue collar centrist guy. And I think well, that's exactly the kind so of Democrats the, need to have in the mid in the Midwest. But of course, he has to run in that way. He, he has no other option but to run without mentioning that he's a Democrat. And so well, with Biden's closing speech, this is something he really, truly believes is an issue that he fundamentally thinks that there is this threat to democracy, that this election is a referendum essentially on that. He's been carrying around John Meacham's new book on Lincoln and the reckoning there. President Biden has he helped John Meacham helped with the speech last night. I think the question, though, is, you know, I was talking to someone last night about, is that really the closing message that people like Tim Ryan want to see the president delivering? Well, and they just said, ugh. Well, and that's exactly <laughs> the point. And even cynical Republicans are going to say this is Democrats trying to change the narrative to being about threats to democracy rather than that they're losing on the economy, on inflation and on crime. I'm not saying that, but expect to see that messaging. Um, it's an important message, but what the party needs right now is what Barack Obama was doing this weekend, what Bernie Sanders has been trying to shout from the rooftops for weeks and weeks, which is do not make abortion your entire identity. Mm -hmm. well, okay, you need I, to focus I'm glad on you're saying issues. that because I was asking someone to bring in. I didn't. I, I left the this polling, the CNN polling, and we put it up in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Look at the, if you look at it, 51 percent of people yep. say it is the economy. And then you look at abortion. It's 15 percent. And then further down, though, with the Republican messaging. 3% crime, but you wouldn't know from <laughs> no. the ads because no. everything is scary. I mean, scary. it does resonate, but it is not at the top of the list for... But I think crime is a bigger issue than the poll lets on. Because it is a big issue. Because if you talk to voters, it really is something yeah. that you hear from a lot of people. It is. A, it's, listen, it's I a think about it a lot. As a parent, and you, I think it's motivating with women. I think about crime significantly. Yeah. The no. actual stats does, do not reflect... The where we all think crime is, it's a bigger issue in our minds than it is. Obviously, people are affected by it. Don't get me wrong. Than the actual evidence shows. So, Those are the facts. Ahead, but look, I think that poll is also a ranking of issues. So folks in this poll are saying oh. economy is the most, most important issue. That I care doesn't about mean this. the other right. stuff is unimportant. Right. And look, crime is a real issue. I think. Right. Look, but in both in inflation and crime, Americans got a little bit lazy. They haven't experienced inflation, you know, in 40 years, haven't experienced rising crime, you know, for, for decades. And so a lot of those gains were taken for granted. Now they're hitting them in the face because they're urgent issues. Yeah. The question is, how do you balance the urgent and the important? They're about your family. We'll find out. Yes. They're fundamentally about your family That's and right. feeding them, protecting them and putting a roof over yeah. their heads. We'll find out Come on back, Tuesday guys. what voters think is the most important. Alyssa, John, thank you both for being here. 
And be sure to tune in next Tuesday. CNN will have special coverage of the election. All of these issues, we'll see what the voters decide. That starts at 4 p.m. Eastern. And it comes, of course, as we talk about the economy, Americans still struggling with the job hunt. Many positions are available, though. We have a report on why people are having trouble finding work in this environment next. Plus, we're going to check in on this story. The House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's family seeing the footage from the attack on her husband. New details straight ahead here on CNN This Morning. Guys, my question with the speeches so is that compared to the Philadelphia speech, since they were so similar. Was- Nation's unemployment rate sitting at 3.5%. It's the lowest level in the last half century. Demand for workers, still strong. There are currently 10.7 million open jobs. Despite this, though, some Americans are still having issues finding a job that best suits them. CNN Business and Politics reporter Vanessa Yurkiewicz joins us with the story. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning, guys. So on the surface, the labor market is looking really strong. But when you start to dig below, you're finding some cracks. And that's actually exactly what the Federal Reserve wants to see. That's why they're raising interest rates. That's why they raised interest rates just yesterday. But for the job seeker, that's not exactly what they want to see. We spoke to some who are finding it hard to find a job in this labor market. I'm open to all options. Carly Pavlinak is on stage in a high-stakes competition. The potential prize, a new job. How do you make sure you're working with the right talent, you're finding the right connections? The biggest thing is just being able to communicate the idea. This is not the first time Pavlinak has done something unconventional to land an interview, since losing her marketing job in September. After she didn't hear back for a position at Nike, she sent them a cake with her resume on it. I've been applying. Obviously, that hasn't worked yet. So let me throw something new in the mix and see if that, you know, works. Her resume cake making headlines. I've since talked to a bunch of people at Nike, um, but still no job. But the economic data tells a different story. The jobs market is strong. There are 10.7 million open positions, labor shortages, and hundreds of thousands of jobs being added each month. Yet some job seekers, even with a viral cake moment, can't seem to land one. On the surface, there's still fairly strong labor market. But if you go a couple of layers under, you are starting to see more significant cracks in the surface that suggest we should eventually see it in those more popular headline type labor market readings. Cracks like a slowdown in hiring, as seen in this week's job opening survey. Hires dropping to 6.1 million, the lowest since February 2021. And the tech industry is shedding jobs 86% more than last year. My perception of the job market was there were a ton of jobs out there and it was going to be easy (laughs) to find a job. And that actually hasn't been the case. Another crack of the 10.7 million open jobs, some companies might be advertising positions they aren't actively trying to fill. I have applied to many jobs that they're still sitting there. That's been a giant question in my head. It's called pipelining talent. Companies post jobs to develop a pool of candidates. Recruiter Laura Mazzullo says she sees companies do it all the time. Candidates don't know that's what's happening. So they're being pipelined when actually they think they're applying for an active job. And this is where we're seeing a bit of a disconnect. That may mean as the labor market weakens, job seekers can't be as picky. Our goal is potentially to give away two jobs tonight. 
I have been picky in that sense of where I want to work, but I know what I want. I'm still searching, still talking to people. I've come to terms that it is taking longer than I thought. I'm so glad you did this because we just often talk about the headline numbers Mm -hmm. that are like, oh, there's millions of jobs and you should just get one. And what you found is like, that's not exactly the case. And you found some interesting disparity within the job market, too, in terms of who. We looked at the job market numbers, sort of the labor numbers that we get, the big job numbers that we get every Friday. We looked at last month's report and we found that the jobs that are being added are sort of in the lower wage market sector. So these are retail jobs. These are jobs in food and hospitality. And we saw the decrease in jobs being added was in finance and insurance. These are the higher paying jobs. So there may be some disparity there, but we may see a continued increase in lower wage jobs as we go into the holidays. Um, Of course, this is something that we're going to keep an eye on as we look to tomorrow's jobs report. Economists are anticipating an ad of 200,000 jobs. That's less than last month. But one thing I've learned in this pandemic and post-pandemic economy, you really can't go by the numbers. You kind of have to wait and see. It's so complicated right now as we looked at in our piece. But what the Federal Reserve wants to see is this slowing of hiring. And that's the anticipation for this big jobs report tomorrow. Thank you, Vanessa Kavich. We appreciate that. Thanks so much. Up next, a synthetic version of magic mushroom showing a lot of promise as a treatment for depression. Our very own Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here with the details on that. Also, some news on actress Sharon Stone. She is speaking out this morning. She's saying she was misdiagnosed, the medical mistake error that she believes could be deadly. I still believe that we don't have the right metrics to measure the More CNN this morning to come after the break. Magic mushrooms, famous for their association with psychedelic counterculture, may also offer some serious mental health benefits, even if you're not a hippie. That's what's written there. But look, this is serious. A new study finds a lab-made version of the chemical found in magic mushrooms can help treat depression. Here to talk about this is our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So some of my friends um, have had a lot of success um, like talking about things like this, and, and I've been fascinated by it and skeptical, so make me not a skeptic. Well, look, there, there's this psychedelic renaissance that is happening. I mean, you know, there was a time in this country where psychedelics were prescribed to treat all sorts of things. It's gone through decades of stigmatization. So LSD and now, was originally. LSD yeah. to treat addiction, yeah. things like that. And now you're starting to see a drumbeat of studies that are starting to crescendo. This is the latest one, the largest one as well. It's a synthetic, as you mentioned. So it's they're, they're actually manufacturing this in a lab. And they're using it to treat people with what is known as treatment-resistant depression, which I think is really important. These are people who failed mm. existing therapies. So you know, the hardest to treat people of all, trying to see if they could find some benefit for them. They t- tried taking conventional medications, didn't work. Now they tried the highest dose, 25 milligrams uh, in, in this particular study. And what they found was that they were getting benefit uh, of, of uh, decreasing depression scores. Yes, about 37% of people had lower depression scores, and it seemed to last a while. That's the other thing. Typically, when you think about antidepressants, taking them every day. This was oftentimes a single dose mm. that then lasted for weeks. So you see the results of the study there. Um, you, you know, what is interesting is that previous studies have shown even a greater benefit overall. So this wasn't quite as dramatic as they've seen in the past, but... There's, there's a lot of enthusiasm here. Largest study of its kind, 22 countries around the world. Let's talk about where we go from here. And also, I, I, I'm wondering about side effects because so many people who need help from different treatments 
just the side effects are too much or they make them feel not yep. like themselves. Is the same true here or not? Well, so first of all, it's a phase two study. So in terms of where we go from here, there's still work to be done. They got to they gotta sort of uh, broaden this out. They got to do larger studies. Side effects were uh, concerning in that they had headache, they had nausea, they had fatigue, uh, higher percentages. 5% of people had suicidal ideation, hmm. meaning that it actually made them more suicidal. What was interesting, though, about these drugs was that typically with antidepressants, you start taking them, it takes weeks to sort of build up a concentration of blood to get a benefit. Here, the greatest benefit was the day after you got the treatment. So it's, it's a different sort of uh, what we call pharmacodynamic here in the body. It's working really fast and then tapers off, whereas with, with uh, antidepressants, it takes a while. They got to see that with suicidal ideations and other things, how much of a factor that plays long term. Right, because that could ultimately derail this potentially. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, we're, we're not there yet, uh, you know, clearly. But I think when you talk about treatment-resistant depression, these are patients who really don't, they don't have any other options. And so you know, they, they oftentimes might be suicidal So they have a different it. approach because they have fewer options? Yeah, that, I mean, this is, the, this is the option for them at this point. This is what they're trying to do. What can we do for patients who don't have anywhere else to turn? Yeah, it's a real issue. Yeah. Sanjay? As always, we yeah. love having you join us here in the I'll morning. I'll be back. So much. Thank you. Yeah, I can't wait for what we're talking <laughs> digging to you nice. about <laughs> next <laughs> hour. You look great <laughs> <Thanks>. now. <laughs> we need to move on, people. It is now the final stretch before the midterm elections. We're going to go live to Atlanta, where everyone is watching the critical Georgia Senate race. Hotlanta. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, Hotlanta. You That's your home. out the side. Shoots from the right. That hangs up. Bouncing by the third. by Brickman. The Astros have a World Series no-hitter. Wow, that was last night. But back when I was a wee boy in 1956. I did not no. look at you when I said 19. I side know, eye. Last time side she did. Eye. I was not here in That game was awesome, though. Not if you're a Phillies fan. Sorry to uh, Alan Malloy <laughs> and my other Phillies fans out there. But it was a really was good really game. really good. And I, yesterday when I said the Astros are, you know, feeling positive, you guys laughed at me. But I have to say that was the first time since 1956. There was a no-hitter at the World Series, and it was truly an amazing moment. And Christian, one of the pitchers, his parents told him before that they felt like it was going no to be hitter. a no-hitter. Really? I think it's so cool. Yeah. I'm going to say nothing about this because yeah. you know that I didn't watch this and I know nothing about it, but congratulations. Who won? Astros. The Astros. They haven't Congrats won the World Astros. Series. They haven't won the World Series. Still a bit to oh. go here. But good morning, everybody. I'm Don Lemon. Poppy Harlow here. We'll keep you updated, Poppy. Appreciate that. Hey, listen, we have a lot to get to here. Uh, more volatility expected this morning on Wall Street as the Fed, again, makes things more expensive for Americans trying to cool the economy. That I know about. I can talk to you about that any day. All right, also a secretly recorded meeting revealed in the Oath Keepers trial. The leader of that right-wing group was trying to send a message to then-President Trump in the aftermath of January 6th. And the Washington Commanders football team might be up for sale soon as the scandals against the team's owner keep piling up. Plus, actress Sharon Stone is speaking out this morning with what she says is a really important message Doctors say they found a large tumor after a misdiagnosis. Yeah, and it's a very busy morning here, straight ahead on CNN this morning. We have the former Secretary of State is going to be here. Hillary Clinton joins us in just a little bit. She's going to talk about the midterms and the crisis 
around the world. Congressman Tim Ryan also joins us on his tough Senate race. Plus, all of our CNN reporters around the world. And you see Anderson Cooper there as well. He will join us a little bit later on. We're going to begin with the economy facing even more headwinds as the issue remains at the top of the minds of voters heading into the midterms. The Fed raising the key interest rate again, that one uh, that makes a, buying a home and a car way more expensive. And in terms of the trouble companies are facing, Bloomberg is reporting that Elon Musk plans to cut 3,700 jobs, half of the company's workforce. Our chief business correspondent joins us right now, Christine Romans. Good morning, Good morning to you. Guys. First, let's start with the feds. Good morning. What does yeah. this mean for the average American? So this is something that matters to absolutely everyone, okay? I mean, it might sound like it's obscure monetary policy, but this is higher borrowing costs for everyone if you buy a home, if you buy a car on your mm. credit cards. I'm, I'm going to say, you know, big warning out there. If you're carrying high interest credit card debt, um, it's really going to be a lot more expensive. If you're buying a home, this is sort of the way we break down the numbers. This is a $400,000 mortgage a year ago. That would have been $1,700 a month. That same mortgage today, if you have good credit, would be $2,600. So it's $900 more in interest. So you can't afford the same house probably that you could have bought last year. Which so that's, is the point. Which is exactly the point, to try to cool down inflation, cool down the economy. We haven't seen it cooling off the job market just yet, but that could be coming around around the pike. But if you're trying to buy a car, if you're holding the high interest uh, credit card debt, this hurts. It hurts. It absolutely hurts. Yeah. And then there's a Twitter shakeup, but it doesn't just affect Twitter. I mean, there are bigger <clears throat> ramifications for. Yeah. So we're, we're all watching Twitter here for what will Elon Musk's Twitter look like and what it will probably look like is a lot fewer employees. Bloomberg is reporting that he's going to lay off about half the staff. Um, they've already lost all of their top executives, either removed or have left. Um, and it's probably, I mean, he's, he's talking, musing, riffing on Twitter about charging $8 a month for your verified blue check, saying that he wants to get away from the land of lords and peasants oh, and, uh, and, and lower the... Would you pay $8 a month? I know. This is actually a huge conversation I've been asking everyone. Pay. Have, it's, it's like cringeworthy you know, if you but pay. On it's like embarrassing if you pay. On principle, it, I wouldn't well, pay I mean, it because of like if it's free speech. And I think AOC Alexander Ocasio Cortez said this yesterday of you know yeah. laughing that free speech is eight dollars a month. You know, but he wants to. I, I don't know. He's trying to shake up what he thinks is the blue what, what blue check elite. Is that what what they call Why it? Why pay for the Twitter when you can get the check for free? <laughs> Thank you, Christine Rowan. Really appreciate it. Enigma wrapped in a riddle. Yeah. <laughs> also this morning, the Georgia Senate race is one being watched incredibly closely across the nation. Just five days left until the midterms. I was in Georgia last week speaking with Governor Brian Kemp about this. The Republican candidate on the ticket, Herschel Walker, has been shrouded in scandal, but he is still virtually tied based on the latest polls. With incumbent Democrat Reverend Raphael Warnock, he is the senator right now in this consequential race, the Democratic candidate. Eva McKend is live for CNN on the ground in Atlanta. Eva, what is the latest that you're seeing there as we've just got days to go, even though, you know, about a million and a half Georgians have already cast their ballots? Well, Caitlin, as we have been traveling around this state the last several weeks, what's become clear is that Senator Warnock, Herschel Walker, can't be any more different, both in terms of style, uh, but also substance, dramatic policy differences, giving Georgians a clear choice, a choice that has national implications. 
God will fight my battle. In Georgia this year, a fierce matchup between a longtime pastor it's the and a former football great. Herschel Walker. Vying for a seat that could determine control of the U.S. Senate. We have come to rejoice. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, won a special election in January 2021 that helped deliver the Senate majority to Democrats. Raphael Warnock and Ted Cruz? As he seeks a full six-year term, Warnock is touting his bipartisan credentials. I'll work with anyone if it means helping Georgia. A Heisman Trophy winner and political newcomer, Republican Herschel Walker is leaning on his biography. He has achieved mighty things. For the first time in the state's history, two black men are facing off as major party nominees for the Senate. With less than a week until the votes are counted, the polls show a tight race. If no candidate gets more than 50% of the vote next week, the race will head to a December runoff. The people of Georgia <clears throat> deserve to see that choice because in this case it's stark and deeply consequential. Walker, who is running with the endorsement of former President Donald Trump, has sought to tie Warnock to the current president, Joe Biden, who narrowly won Georgia in 2020. Two years later, his standing in the state has sunk amid concerns about the economy and high inflation. The thing they're doing to this economy, is it not right? Instead of bringing in Biden, Warnock leaning on a former Democratic president, Barack Obama, to help energize voters and make the case against Walker. Seems to me he's a celebrity who wants to be a politician. In the closing weeks of the campaign, the contest was rocked by reports. Walker, who is staunchly opposed to abortion rights, pressured two women to have abortions. CNN has not independently confirmed those allegations. I've already told people this is a lie and I'm not going to entertain to continue to carry a lie alone. For his part, Warnock has largely avoided directly attacking Walker over the reports. Abortion allegations. Instead, trying to raise questions about his GOP rival's character. We will see time and time again that my opponent has a problem with the truth. With the Senate potentially at stake, Republican leaders and voters have rallied behind Walker. Are you concerned about the abortion allegations at all? No, no, because, you know, everyone makes a mistake. According to Georgia's Secretary of State, Georgia has reached the two million mark for total turnout. Caitlin? It's absolutely amazing to see those early voting numbers, almost at the level of a presidential election. Eva McKent, thank you for that report. Another closely watched Senate race is also underway in Ohio. The Democratic candidate there, Congressman Tim Ryan, is going to be joining CNN this morning live. And you can also join CNN for special election coverage that starts next Tuesday at 4 o'clock Eastern. We will be watching that Georgia Senate race, the Ohio Senate race, and all the other ones across the nation. So just a few minutes till we get to Tim Ryan, but this now, members of Speaker Nancy Pelosi's family have now seen police body camera footage. They've actually seen what happened to her husband, Paul Pelosi. They have also heard that terrifying 911 call that Mr. Pelosi made. The San Francisco district attorney confirms the attack was, quote, politically motivated, and that Pelosi's assailant is a, quote, extremely dangerous individual. She also tells Wolf Blitzer she will not be releasing any of the video or the audio to the public. My job, Wolf, is to make sure that we protect the state of this uh, investigation and the successful uh, future of this prosecution. And for us, uh, revealing that evidence um, through the media is just not what we think is appropriate. We want to make sure that this individual is held accountable for these egregious acts. And so for us, we're going to make sure that we limit uh, the exposure of the evidence as much as possible in order to get that done. 
That's the San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins saying that Paul Pelosi's attacker presents a significant risk to the public, to public safety, not only to Speaker Pelosi and her family, but to other people mentioned in that list of targets that he had, as well as to the general public. Now to that violent attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband at their home is raising questions about what Capitol Police are doing to improve security for members of Congress and their families. We're now learning House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, in the wake of January 6th, was skeptical about the need for more officers to protect lawmakers. Straight to CNN's Manu Raju, live for us this morning on Capitol Hill. Good morning to you. So there were some skeptics. Are there still considering what has happened to Nancy Pelosi's husband and other threats on members of Congress? Well, Don, there's been just a lot of uncertainty around the Capitol Police in the aftermath of the January 6th attack. And that is in part because there have been a number of police officers who have left the force and they've had a difficult time hiring up, staffing up, even though we have seen escalating threats and now, of course, violence that we saw last week at the Pelosi home. Now, Nancy Pelosi, in the aftermath of January 6th, uh, hired, commissioned, uh, retired uh, Army Lieutenant General Russell Honore to do a security review of the U.S. Capitol to determine what improvements were needed. Now, Honore revealed for the first time to our colleagues that he he briefed Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, and and told him about the need for new hires. And, And Honore tells us that after he briefed him, quote, his opinion was they just need better management. They don't need more officers. Now, Honore wanted 854 new hires to the U.S. Capitol Police. We reached out to Kevin McCarthy's office to see what they have to say about Honore's claim. But this comes as we saw yesterday, Zoe Lofgren, who is the head of the House Administration Committee, someone who oversees the U.S. Capitol Police, sent out a letter to the Capitol Police chief asking what security protocols are underway at the department, particularly for people who are in line in presidential succession like Nancy Pelosi is, how to deal with the family members and those individuals' homes. What was significant, what we have learned in this past week, was that for 10 whole minutes, the U.S. Capitol Police was not monitoring a live police camera feed outside the Pelosi San Francisco home as the attack at their home was underway last week. And it was because they don't actively monitor those feeds when the person, the leadership, member of leadership is not at that that home. Pelosi was in Washington at the time, not San Francisco, all leading to questions about what more resources are needed at this critical time of escalating violence and threats Mm -hmm. against politicians and their families. Manu Raju on Capitol Hill this morning. Thank you, Manu. I appreciate that. Thank you. Also this morning, Japan says that it strongly condemns North Korea's latest barrage of weapons tests that you've seen. Overnight, North Korea fired at least three missiles into the sea between the Korean Peninsula and Japan, including a suspected intercontinental ballistic missile, which we believe appears to have failed, according to the South Korean government. Barbara Starr is live for CNN this morning at the the Pentagon. Barbara, what are you seeing and, and what are officials of the Pentagon saying about these tests from North Korea? Well, good morning, Caitlin. This entire topic actually is going to be front and center at the Pentagon this morning. In just a short while, the uh, defense minister of South Korea expected to walk up those Pentagon steps for a pre-scheduled meeting with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. But it comes after this spate of launches. So expect the two ministers to sit down and talk about what the next steps may be. A lot of attention on that suspected intercontinental ballistic missile launched and failed, it is believed. But nonetheless, this is a missile that, if it works someday, would have the capability, of course, to reach all the way to the United States. So there's a lot of concern 
Even though it failed, the U.S. position is that uh, North Korea continues to learn with every failed launch. Uh, they are struggling, it is believed, with their precision guidance on these new missiles. But every time they launch, they learn something. And we know now that some ongoing air exercises between the U.S. and South Korea are now going to be extended. Some 240 aircraft from both nations involved, they're going to be extended for a few days on those exercises at least, trying to, again, send a signal to Kim Jong-un. No indication he's listening. Yeah, no contact between the North Koreans and the Biden administration so far. Barbara, what about this, what this accusation that we saw from the United States yesterday, that North Korea is shipping artillery shells to Russia that they could potentially use in Ukraine? Well, uh, the administration, the White House, only going so far saying that they believe North Korea is doing it, not saying that anybody's taken delivery on the Russian end. But nonetheless, it perhaps goes to Kim Jong-un's motivation. A lot of experts here at the Pentagon believe that he wants to get attention on the world stage. He needs money and he wants attention. So that may be part of the thinking about why North Korea is doing all of this. But nonetheless, again, it comes to the point he is pursuing this weapons program. And critically, I think the next thing everyone really is watching for is the possibility that Kim will undertake another, a seventh underground nuclear test. All the intelligence we are told indicates they are ready at any time to do that kind of underground nuclear test, and that will be very destabilizing. Caitlin? Yeah, incredibly so. Barbara Starr, thank you as always. Sure. Meantime, the owner of the Washington Commanders, the owners, Daniel and Tanya Snyder, they are finally looking at a sale of the team. This is months after the House Oversight Committee found that Snyder fostered a toxic work environment. Our Tom Foreman joins CNN this morning from FedEx Field, where the Commanders play. This has been long coming, and, and Tom, this comes after some other... Uh, NFL owners have said it's it's time to sell this team. Oh. Yeah, and you could call them the commanders of chaos. Mm. This team has been through this tumultuous name change, controversial headlines, and now the guy at the middle of it all who's indicated for so long he would not sell is suggesting maybe he will. A potential billion-dollar sale in the NFL. Washington Commander's owner Dan Snyder signaling he is open to sell the NFL team. Forbes estimates to be worth $5.6 billion. Snyder bought the team in 1999 for $750 million, according to Forbes. It's unclear if Snyder is exploring selling the entire franchise or just a share, and any transaction would require the approval of three-quarters of NFL team owners, according to the Washington Post. It's been a turbulent two years for Snyder. The embattled owner has faced accusations he hired private investigators to look into his NFL counterparts and Commissioner Roger Goodell. Snyder denies these allegations. The NFL and House Oversight Committee investigated Snyder for fostering a toxic workplace environment after multiple accusations of workplace improprieties. You're aware that in 2009, Daniel, Dan Snyder was accused of sexually assaulting an employee on a private airplane, correct? Am I aware of that? Yes, I'm and, aware of that allegation. That employee was fired, but Snyder and the team settled with the accuser for $1.6 million. Initially, Snyder refused to appear, but later did sit for a deposition. The committee concluded Snyder conducted a shadow investigation to target his accusers, pin the blame on others, and influence the NFL's own internal review. Snyder has denied those accusations, too.
It shows the links Mr. Mr. Snyder went to, to harass, intimidate, and silence his accusers. The NFL, for its part, did find fault with Snyder at the conclusion of its own internal review, which resulted in Snyder handing daily control over to his wife. We impose unprecedented discipline on the club, monetary penalties of well over $10 million. In a statement, the team said the Washington commanders have fully cooperated with federal and state investigators. So right now, there's a lot of speculation about who a new buyer might be, somebody with very deep pockets to be sure. As for the coach, the team, and most certainly the fans, they would just like to get all of this behind them and perhaps start having some winning seasons again. There you go. Tom Foreman live for us there. Uh, Thank you, Tom. We appreciate it. Legendary actress Sharon Stone has revealed that she was misdiagnosed and mistreated for a tumor. Stone tweeted that, After an incorrect procedure, she got a second opinion, revealing a large fibroid tumor. With us now, CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, good morning to you. The question is, I mean, it's awful for Sharon Stone, but how common are these misdiagnoses? Don, they're actually much more common than you might think. A recent study from Johns Hopkins found that when you look at big things like cancer or heart attacks or infections or stroke, that the diagnosis rate might be as high as one in 10. One in 10 people get misdiagnosed. And the authors of this study, they said misdiagnosis is a serious threat to patient safety. How is she doing? I mean, Don makes a good point. It's about every, it's about everyone. I think all our viewers want to know how is Sharon Stone doing after this too? You know, she didn't really talk about that much, Poppy. It's such a great question. I think the thing about this, it's so true with so many misdiagnoses. Once you get the right diagnosis, in her case, she said fibroids, and we're assuming she means uterine fibroids. There are great treatments for that, and you can talk to your doctor, and there are different choices. Once you get the right diagnosis, it opens the door to recovery. So we're, we're hoping, and, and it seems like she would be doing fine now that she has the right diagnosis. Yeah. And Elizabeth, she singled out women in particular in her warning, saying, you know, ladies, don't get blown off, talking about getting a second opinion. Can you speak to the level of concern that women should have about being misdiagnosed, that they aren't often having their pain, their actual issues treated correctly or even diagnosed correctly? Caitlin, that is so true. There have been studies that show that women are more likely to be misdiagnosed. There's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them you've really honed in on it, which is that women are, it's more often that doctors will tell women, when, oh, you're just complaining. I mean, they may not put it that way, but that's mm-hmm. basically what they're saying. Women are going to be written off as complainers or just told that it's all in their head. Men don't get told that as much. The same is true for people of color. The misdiagnosis rates for people of color are higher than for white people. And one of the reasons is their complaints aren't taken as seriously. And they should be. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. That's right. Next on Thanks. CNN This Morning, we're joined by Congressman Tim Ryan. Who's trying to win the Senate seat in Ohio. It is a tighter and tighter race as the days go by. Yeah, a lot of questions for him. We're also learning more about the troubling message that the leader of the group known as the Oath Keepers sent trying to keep and trying to relay it to former President Trump. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This year, I hope you'll 
make the future of our democracy an important part of your decision to vote and how you vote. How many here think inflation and the economy is the number one issue in this race? And you're one of them. I'm one of them. I've been screaming at Democrats, too, for a year and a half to pass a tax cut. All right, President Biden leading those Democrats, sounding the alarm and urging Americans to cast a vote in favor of democracy on Election Day. That's what he made his closing argument last night. Well, many Republicans and a handful of Democrats spend the last days of their campaign catering to what voters actually care about most, which is the economy. Stupid, right? It, that's what they say. And it is in this election, too. This is according to CNN's latest polling. Joining us now, Ohio Senate candidate Congressman Tim Ryan. Look, good morning. Good morning. We have a lot to get to with you. We, we thank you for your time. Hi guys. You heard the president last night, right? Thank he you. He didn't make an argument on the economy. His mm -hmm. argument was about this election is all about defending democracy. Was that the wrong argument for this election for Democrats to win? Well, you know, we have to be able to address both of these issues. I'm very focused on the economy as you play the tax cut. People are crushed. I mean, this inflation is, is killing people. You could be a home health care worker uh, in Cleveland or you can be a construction worker in southern Ohio where you have to drive a lot. The gas prices are killing you. So we need to put money in people's pockets. We need a tax cut. We need it now. But then you see the level of extremism going on with candidates like J.D. Vance, who I'm running against. You see what Donald Trump Jr. posted after the Paul Pelosi incident, um, the derogatory remarks against him. Like there is a level of political violence happening in the country that absolutely needs to be confronted. A bunch of election deniers, which is the uh, from 2020, which is the quickest way to undermine the democracy. And then the extremism that's coming on a national abortion ban or banning books in mm -hmm. schools and all of that stuff. We have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time in the United States. It's a complicated country, which means you need good leaders who can focus both so, on the economy and preserving our democracy. All right. So just sticking with the economy for a minute, because you've made pretty clear it's like issue number one and the voters think so too. Maria Milligan, she's a voter from Perrysburg, Ohio. Uh, she said she's been forced to drain her savings because inflation is out of control. And she said she's only voting for Republicans because yeah. she thinks they understand money better. You told me three years ago in your CNN presidential town hall, you said we need to save capitalism from itself. What would you do right now? What does that mean today in this economy? Well, one, I, th I think it's part of, you know, the Democrat problem, the national Democrats problem is that a woman who's having economic problems just outside of Toledo, Ohio, is looking to the Republican Party for some help. And the Republican Party is doing nothing but defending extremists who want to overthrow the government and undermine our democracy. That's a problem that the National Democratic Party has. I would say to her, we have to cut their taxes. You know, they most of the Republicans and uh, weren't for the infrastructure bill, uh, didn't support the Inflation Reduction Act, where we were able to make huge investments that are going to land in Northwest Ohio to invest in the solar industry, which is going to create jobs. But again, tax cut, put money in people's pockets. We got all the smart economists who told us inflation wasn't going to be a problem. Now it's a problem. And now, you know, we need to make sure that the average worker has more money in their pockets. The supply chains are starting to loosen up. This is going to go away in several months. Um, as, as the global economy opens back up. But you got to put money in people's pockets. They didn't do anything wrong. Give them a tax cut. And Congressman Ryan, you know, polling is polling, but you and your opponent, J.D. Vance, are pretty close. Why do you think your party is not doing more to help you in this race? 
You know, the National Democratic Party has never been really good at strategic <laughs> political decisions. Uh, so, you know, it's not a surprise here. Um, thank God that I have enough experience that I've built this campaign not needing them, and we really don't want them at this point. Um, we're going to do this thing with uh, with all the grassroots people we have here. Organized labor's been huge. We have 415,000 donors across the country. Our average contribution is 95% uh, of our contributions are under $100. We've built a robust uh, machine here in Ohio that doesn't need the National Democratic Party. And it's going to give me a, a level of independence uh, that most senators don't have. I'll probably be one of the most independent senators uh, ever to walk into the Senate, where J.D. Vance, on the other hand, has taken $15 million from a Silicon Valley billionaire and $40 million from Mitch McConnell. This guy's bought and paid for before he even walks into the door. So we're continuing to build that out. People can go to timforoh.com and chip there in and is. help be a part of this <laughs> machine. But if they, if, they don't, if they don't recognize, if they don't, thank you, if they don't recognize um, that, that we got a real shot to win this thing and that we're going to shock the world, then that's on them, not on me. Representative, I've got to ask you, because you said, you know, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time in your answer <clears> to Poppy Harlow. We, what we also have to be able to do is sit down and talk to each other, which has been really tough over the last couple of years, especially when you have someone egging people on to, you know, egging on division. You go into the lion's den. We saw you there, you know, conservative media taking the tough questions. And when you talk about things, you know, when you give people facts, they don't like it because they are in this echo chamber of media, just listening to conservative media and the facts aren't necessarily present. But I think, don't you think more people need to do that? You've got um, Katie Hobbs. She won't, you know, debate her opponent. You're not afraid to do that. What is the lesson here for Democrats? Have some guts. Have some guts. Look, you, got, you have to lead. This, this moment right now is calling for leadership. It's calling for citizenship. People are tired of the hate, tired of the anger, tired of the fear, tired of the division. But you need leaders who can go into an environment like a Fox News town hall as a Democrat and say, look, we got to love each other. We got to care about each other. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation. We need reform. We need some grace. And it starts by leaders going into those environments saying, I understand you have concerns. Let's talk about them because we're the thing we have in common, Don, is that our kids and our grandkids are all going to live together. Okay. And we have to make a decision right now in this election whether we're going to give them a culture where they can have a conversation to solve problems or we're going to give them a culture where they have to hate each other and you have the level of political violence we saw with Paul Pelosi. And that's just not acceptable to me. We've got to ask citizens to step up. All right. That said, then, who do you, do you think you're going to win over Republicans? Where are you going to win over these Republicans in Ohio who are because I'm wondering how they uh, treat you when you go there. Do you think you're going to be able to do that? <laughs> We're, we're doing amazing. We've got a huge Republican accountability project that's making huge investments into the state, not coordinated with our campaign, but we see them everywhere with billboards that say, I'm a conservative, I'm a gun owner, and I'm, I'm voting for Tim Ryan. Uh, hmm. Rob Portman, the current Republican uh, senator now, his former chief of staff is running that uh, Republicans for Ryan initiative. Former Congressman Dave Hobson is on board. We have so many two-time Trump voters who aren't for the insurrectionists mm -hmm. and aren't for the, all the craziness and insanity, but they're voting for me because I'm talking about the pocketbook issues that they care about. How do we build the natural <coughs> gas industry? How do we increase manufacturing? How do we build electric vehicles? How do we just start building things again? And again, if you don't go to these communities like I have, I've been to all 88 counties in Ohio. I've been up and down the Ohio River uh, for the last 
last 18 months and say, look, I care about you. I love you. I'm concerned about your kids, too. And I'm right. going to work my rear end off to get jobs in these communities. And, and that that's all people want to hear. Like, this is not rocket science. This is a people business. You get all the really smart people who want to get into the analytics and all that craziness. And it's just like, go talk to people. Well, tell them you care about them and so tell them you want to help. And it's that simple. I'm fascinated by something that we've seen with a lot of the races across the nation, and we'll be looking to see what this looks like on election night on Tuesday, which is people who are splitting their tickets. That is something that you really don't see often these days. People either vote all Democrat or all Republican. But have you encountered voters, you know, what you were just talking about there, Republicans who are voting for you, have you encountered people who are voting for you for the Senate, but for the Republican candidate for governor? Yeah. Yeah, there are. There's a lot of a lot of signs with with Mike DeWine and Tim Ryan all over the state. I think people, you know, really like our message. They don't want the extremism uh, of J.D. Vance. And so there are a lot of Republicans that are saying, like, look, we have to come together. I don't want the extremism on either side. And I'm going to vote uh, down the middle. And that's what's happening here in Ohio. And so there are a lot of DeWine Ryan supporters. Mm-hmm. And again, we've got to work together. Like, we've got to stop this insanity of thinking that you got to agree with somebody 100% of the time. Amen. You know, and I joke all yeah. the time on the campaign campaign trail with my wife there. I'm like, mm-hmm. are you married? You know, like <laughs> me and my wife, if we have 10 conversations and we agree on seven of them, we pop a bottle of wine and celebrate oh, man. how great our marriage was Thank on that you. day. Like this is not, this is I, not how, this I, is I not how the world well, works. We don't always agree with each other. Stop it. Here, I don't agree no, with my don't. mom all the time. I don't agree with my fiance I just think all the time. that your batting average is uh, one to aspire to in a marriage. So seven out of 10 is great. I'm all for that, Congressman. But on a very serious note, I want to talk about China before we go, because you have been like beating the drum on this for years. You told us, Three years ago in that presidential town hall, this is the number one issue the next president's going to face. Guess what? Biden's going to the G20. He's going to likely sit down with Xi. And you said it is us versus China. And instead of talking about that in Washington, they're focusing on stupid fights. What would you do if you were Biden sitting down with Xi on China right now? I think you've got to talk to uh, him about fentanyl. And the level of fentanyl that's coming out of China, going to Mexico and ending up in our country, uh, I think we should designate it as a weapon of mass destruction so we can try to do our best to marshal the resources to keep it out of our country. I think we need to continue to make robust investments into the technologies of the future uh, for our military. We have to be the strongest military uh, in the world on land, air, sea, cyber, space, the whole nine yards. This is a country not to be messed with. We don't want to go to war with them, but we better be, we better come to that from a position of strength. I would talk to them about their their help with Russia going into Ukraine. Mm-hmm. They certainly winked and nodded and said it was okay to go, but that go right after the Olympics. That's an unacceptable position uh, for them to have. And Americans need to realize that Russia and China are coordinating military efforts now. They're coordinating economic efforts. Russia wants, uh, China wants to displace us. And these are countries that don't have free speech, free press. They have ethnic cleansing. They punish their political opponents, which is why we have to have the strongest economy possible. This is why we have to rebuild the great American middle class. This is why we have to dominate the industries of the future and go to shop class and robust investments and joint vocational school because we've got to be the manufacturing powerhouse of the world. We've got to be the arsenal of energy for the world. 
This is a real deal. And when we got out of you know, the World War II generation and the greatest generation, we've kind of lost that connection to our role to defend freedom mm -hmm. in the world. And we have to do that in Ukraine. And that starts with these yeah. tough conversations in China. But we've got to come at these conversations from a position of All strength. Right. And that would be my recommendation to the president. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, we really appreciate you. Congressman Tim Ryan, appreciate yeah. all the time Good this morning. morning. Have a great we morning, guys. We'll yeah. see Thank you, you soon. Love the merch. Thank you. Love the red pullover. <laughs> Thank Everyone you very wants much. this sweater. That's an interesting yeah. closing message, though, yeah. compared to what we heard from President it's Biden. It's totally different. Yeah. It's totally different. We have five days to go. Join CNN for special election night coverage. Starts Tuesday, 4 p.m. Eastern, right here. Threats against Nancy Pelosi and a warning of potential combat on U.S. soil. We have newly released audio from the Oath Keepers' seditious conspiracy trial. And the troubling climate report this morning on the future of the Earth's iconic glaciers. Glaciers are uh, one of the most valuable indicators of climate change uh, because they are visible. We can see with our eyes. More CNN this morning to come after the break. An alarming new report about the planet's climate crisis, a UN group finding that a third of the planet's most iconic glaciers, including two of the most visited and most beloved at national parks here in the United States, are on track to disappear in the next 30 years. Joining us now is CNN national correspondent Renee Marsh. 30 years is pretty quick, Renee. Yeah, it certainly is. And this is a first-of-its-kind global assessment of the world's most iconic glaciers, from Mount Kilimanjaro to Yosemite and Yellowstone right here at home. And some of these sites might feel like a world away, but the impact of this accelerated melt will be far-reaching as it drives global sea level rise. Some of the world's most renowned glaciers are on track to disappear in the next 30 years, whether global warming is slowed or not. A sobering finding from United Nations researchers based on satellite data. Among the glaciers on the brink of vanishing are those in two of the most visited U.S. national parks, Yosemite and Yellowstone. Repeat photography documents the vanishing glaciers through time. Glaciers are uh, one of the most valuable indicators of climate change uh, because they are visible. We can see with our eyes uh, the, the retreat uh, of a glacier. The report finds that one third of the planet's glaciers identified by the United Nations as locations of significance are set to disappear and scientists warn the impact will be felt a world away. Glaciers retreat is contributing to about 5% of global sea level rise. The impacts of this melting can be seen in our daily lives through, for instance, floods, uh, as well as a coastal erosion and even tsunamis. Glacier melt was believed to have contributed to two catastrophic floods this summer. At Yellowstone National Park, torrential rain and abnormally warm temperatures caused a wave of snow melt that produced a foot of runoff and dangerous flooding. And in Pakistan, intense monsoon rainfall coupled with glacial melt following extreme heat in the region triggered deadly flooding. Well, the runoff from glaciers are also an important water source, so this will have a critical impact on agriculture, irrigation, even hydropower, especially in those drought-prone states. And scientists say, Caitlin, the main action that's needed to counteract this is simply cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Caitlin? Yeah, the effects of it are so widespread. Yeah. Renee Marsh, thank you.
Well, there's Thanks. troubling new revelations to tell you about from the Oath Keepers trial and a secretly recorded meeting days after January 6th. Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes allegedly tried to issue a warning about potential violence to then President Donald Trump and urge him to invoke the Insurrection Act. We're going to get straight now to CNN Sarah Seidner, who has been following the trial here this morning. Uh, good morning to you. What, talk to us about this secret recording, Sarah. What's up with that? Yeah, it, it's really interesting that you have so many um, recordings and so many messages that we're hearing directly from the mouths of those who are the defendants in this case. This one came from uh, Oath Keeper founder Stuart Rhodes, one of the five people on trial for seditious conspiracy. And it was recorded about January 10th, so a few days after the attack on the Capitol, uh, where he stood outside and some of his members went into the Capitol and stormed it, as they put it, in their own recordings. But in this recording, it was a U.S. military veteran who told uh, the, the jury that he had some indirect connection with Donald Trump. And Stuart Rhodes was trying to get a message to Donald Trump about what to do next or what should happen. Let me let you listen to some of what the jury heard in this secret recording. We're going to be in combat here on U.S. soil no matter what, no matter what you think of it. It's coming. You can't get out of this too late. So there's going to be combat, um, you know, th these are the violent terms in which Stuart Rhodes apparently saw the situation. He was trying to get this message to Donald Trump. There's also another message that's pretty disturbing, especially in light of what's happened to Paul Pelosi, who was attacked with a hammer by someone who had been looking at a lot of this conspiracy theory uh, and anti-Pelosi anti rhetoric, if you will, um, anti-Democrat re rhetoric. There is a part of the message where Rhodes is uh, allegedly trying to get an, another message to Trump saying, if he would have known that Donald Trump was going to uh, basically concede, they should have brought rifles. And then he says this, according to the witness. So you see just another example there of sort of coming after Nancy Pelosi with this violent rhetoric, uh, talking about taking her out. Um, and, you know, there, there was a real concern uh, after all of this that there was going to be something that happened on January 21st uh, when the, the inauguration happened. And so this is just an example that prosecutors are saying, look, it is very clear they were trying to stop the democratic process and you have it in their own words. Now, the prosecution is almost done with their case. They are expected to rest today. And guess who we're going to hear from uh, immediately when the defense takes uh, their case to the jury? We're going to hear from Stuart Rhodes mm. himself. Mm. He is expected to be one of the first witnesses in the defense case. Sarah, thank you. We're going to we'll, sure. we'll wait for the outcome of this trial to see what happened. I mean, this is just the worst, most vile. And I remember January 21st, the security in Washington was unlike anything yeah, you had ever right? seen because of January 6th, and they were so freaked out about what could happen. It's just, so we'll, I, don't know how, I don't know how this has become okay in our society, but we'll move on. We will follow it, yeah. and we'll follow it with kindness. Why don't we do that? We're switching gears. We've been doing a series you. this week. <laughs> I am optimistic on the science behind why we act the way we do, right? So today, kindness. Why does helping others make us feel good? We'll tell you with Dr. Sanjay Gupta next. <laughs> I'm such a skeptic, Dr. Gupta.
Okay, so Dr. Gupta gave us some homework. <laughs> he told us we had to perform one act of kindness. So how do we do? I think I failed. <laughs> Come on, one, one act of kindness. Yeah. Uh, so my kids did it. Okay, and this is pretty great. They made these cards. Aww. That was last night, Sienna and Luca, for their good friend, Pearl. Pearl was just diagnosed Aww. about two weeks ago with leukemia. She's in the hospital. We're going to show you. That is sweet Pearl. Yeah. Wow. She's, guys, she's going to be okay. Yeah. It is the less aggressive form, but four weeks of chemo and then hopefully remission. But this is a years-long struggle for their family. But this is the even passing on the kindness, Sanjay. The family has the means to help support the family while she's in the hospital, but many other families don't. Look at this. Go to Team Pearl Girl supporting other families in need with kids with cancer in the She's hospital so and help them out. Pearl yeah. is amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Man, I feel bad now. We What'd just, you do, Don? I bought uh, a <laughs> fiance ice cream after dinner, and I, I bought a lotto ticket that I'll share with Don you. Don does a lot of kind acts. Flowers. Orchids for us. Don did yeah. give us flowers. Are, so what's up show. with this? How does this I, explain? I, I find this fascinating, this idea that it feels good to do good. And I'll tell you why. There's been recent data that's shown this, this neural link between generosity and happiness. And just, just think about that as a concept. You do something kind, and it fundamentally changes your brain. And we can see now, I mean, these are recent studies. This is the area of the brain that actually changes in response to an act of generosity, an act of altruism, an act of kindness, the helper's high, so to speak. If you were to look at it on this brain model, it's right in this area over here. Your brain changes immediately when you do something like that. And that's, that's, that's an area that uh, you know, people have been researching now for some time, trying to figure out how the brain responds when people are kind to each other. The reason I think this is so interesting is because we're in this culture where we do put a lot of emphasis on taking care of yourself, putting yourself first, which mental health and that kind of stuff is so important. But it's interesting that you know, if you're looking at this from a cynical perspective, you would think that that would be yes. what makes you feel better, but it's actually putting others. I know, first. and, th and th that's, I think, perhaps the most fascinating part because evolutionarily, you know, Darwin didn't actually say survival of the fittest, but that's what we think rugged individualism. It's all about the self. But we find that, you know, that's obviously not exactly true. There is sort of uh, this idea of, of helping your own family, sort of the idea of kin uh, being uh, somebody that you will actually do acts of kindness for, even your groups, people who you identify within your own groups. But it's this idea of stranger selection, people you don't know, random acts of kindness for a total stranger, which actually causes these sorts of changes in the brain. Mm. That's the big difference. Why would we do that evolutionarily if it's all about protecting the self? Well, it's about protecting the species, protecting mm -hmm. strangers. And that's what I think these brain studies have really shown. It's Doctor, so interesting. You're the best. That's my act of kindness. You're the best. You look great. That is very kind you make of you, Don. Smarter. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. The room lights aren't, up. Aren't, like the aren't you more optimistic Thank now? Thank you. Yeah, I am an optimist. Than before the commercial? You are. I'm also a realist. All right. You bring good <laughs> Thank energy. you very much. Some Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. <laughs> you got it. Some big names are hitting the campaign trail in the final stretch of the midterms. We're going to take you next to Iowa. <laughs> and also next, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is going to be joining CNN this morning live, taking our questions. It is something you're not going to want to miss. <laughs> Caitlin thinks so. Did it warm your cold heart? <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? We always say that it's a very busy news morning, and it really is. It's a big news day. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. We're so glad that you're waking up with us. Hope you're having a cup of coffee and breakfast and 
We're getting going. This is Caitlin Collins. This is Poppy Harlow. I'm Don Lemon. We appreciate it. It is Thursday, November 3rd. So welcome to CNN this morning. So why don't we get right to it? Because yeah. we, the secretary, former secretary of state, Hillary Clinton, coming up, and we have a lot of things we want to ask her. It is go time. Just five days left until the midterms. The political heavyweights are hitting the campaign trail. Joining us this morning to discuss Hillary Clinton. We're going to ask the former Democratic nominee for president why she believes voters aren't grasping what it, what's really at stake on Tuesday. Uh, the closers are on the campaign trail all across the country. Former President Barack Obama stumping in Arizona, warning voters that conspiracy theorists and election deniers are putting democracy on the brink. The former president using a heckler to make his case. Watch this. This is part of what happens in our politics these days. We get distracted. You got one person yelling and suddenly everybody's yelling. You get one tweet that's stupid and suddenly everybody's obsessed with the tweet. We can't fall for that. We have to stay focused. Obama is not the only former president on the campaign trail. Former President Trump is also set to hold a rally in Sioux City, Iowa. He is not the only potential Republican presidential candidate who is in the state. Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo have all made appearances in Iowa in recent weeks, campaigning for Republican candidates, maybe even definitely testing the waters for themselves. Jeff Zeleny is live for CNN this morning in Sioux City, Iowa. Jeff, a lot of airplane traffic that is happening there. Caitlin, there certainly is. And of course, Iowa is not the hottest 2022 battleground, but it has something else that's more enticing. It's the opening bell of the 2024 presidential race. And as this uh, Republican wave of optimism is really sweeping across the country, Donald Trump is making clear that he wants to be at the center of that. That is why he is beginning four rallies in five days here in Sioux City, Iowa, the, the northwest corner of Iowa, which is the home to the biggest Republican base in this state. I'm told he's trying to reassert himself. One aide said, it's a victory lap. Of course, we have several days to go until the actual election day here, but that is the point of the rally tonight, trying to make the former president front and center in what they believe is going to be a strong Republican showing next week. Yeah, and Jeff, you know, we talked about the other potential 2024 candidates that are have been in Iowa. What about Governor DeSantis? I didn't mention him. Is, is he coming to Iowa? You didn't, but Caitlin, I'm told that he actually is eyeing a trip to Iowa. Of course, he has a reelection bit of his own. Uh, he's on the ballot next week in Florida. But once that is out of the way, and they're very optimistic, he's in command of that race, uh, they are likely to travel here as well. He's been traveling across the uh, country already, campaigning for other Republican candidates. He stayed away from Iowa, I'm told, to avoid being a distraction. Uh, but he is likely to come here. But the question is, when you talk to Republican voters, is there an opening for a broad field of candidates or people going to get behind Donald Trump. I can tell you, talking to Republicans here, there is a market for other candidates, a bigger field. So, of course, we're getting a bit of slightly ahead of ourselves here. Of course, that is the next race. But Republicans so optimistic about this race here next Tuesday. Caitlin? Yeah, we'll be watching to see. Jeff, you're going to be spending a lot of time there. Make sure you get a steak for me at 801 Chop House. <laughs> And be sure to tune in. Jeff will be joining us on Tuesday for CNN's special election coverage. It starts at 4 p.m. Eastern. I want to get right to this now. We're joined now by someone who knows about this final push very well, the former Secretary of State, former Senator, and former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Secretary, good morning. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us this morning. 
Glad to talk with you, Don. So uh, the reason that you're, you're here, one of the main reasons, and I've been watching you, you know, um, going on um, the, the television and even in your social media, you say that voters aren't really grasping the gravity of this election. Is that the product of Democratic messaging? What is your message? Oh, I think there probably are a lot of reasons. Uh, you just had a clip from uh, President Obama talking about distraction. Uh, there's just so much happening. But I would boil it down to this. Um, it's really difficult to uh, tell people what's going to happen in the future when, understandably, they are focused on the present. So, yes, uh, people are worried about the cost of living. They're worried about the economy. Although the Republicans have absolutely no plan to do anything about that. And so it's more challenging to say, hey, look, uh, they're going to go after Social Security and Medicare. That is not something we're making up. They're saying it themselves. And hey, you know, they're going after democracy and even counting votes that uh, they think will help them and not others that won't. I mean, those are real threats, threats to individuals and our lives every day and threats to our country. But it is more challenging to get that focus uh, on the future. So do you think it's the messaging? I have to ask you, because if you look at the CNN polling, right, the, and this is our um, we conducted this October 26th through the 31st. This is among likely voters. The most important issues for their congressional vote, the most important issues out there, it is the economy and inflation at 51%. And then abortion, which Democrats are running on, is at 15%. Um, crime for Republicans, which they're running on that, 3%. We can talk about that later. But do you think it is the right messaging leading? Because I know you, you want to talk about the economy in your messaging as you go out. Well, I always think you have to talk about the economy because uh, that's uh, it, critical to everybody, whether it's an election year or not. What I wish we could convey more effectively is that if you look at what has been accomplished in the first uh, two years of the Biden presidency with uh, the Congress uh, working hand in hand, uh, there has been an enormous amount of commitment of new building, new infrastructure, new investments in manufacturing, new ways to lower healthcare costs. I mean, insulin uh, price going down, drug prescription price going down. In fact, the work that has been done by the Democrats in helping the economy and helping people deal with what is global inflation, not just American uh, inflation, uh, is truly impressive. And we got to get that message across more effectively. Well, I wonder why voters aren't getting that. I mean, and listen, here's an example, because you're going to be campaigning with, uh, you know, Governor uh, Kathy Hochul, along with the vice president, you're going to be campaigning for her and Letitia James, meaning uh, Hochul. And, you know, we're talking about a state where you were elected. It is a blue state. And that is a signal that something is amiss here, that Democrats are nervous uh, in a blue state like New York. So why isn't that message getting across? Why is Kathy Hochul, you know, neck and neck with the former or the Republican congressman, Lee Zeldin, who is also running for governor? Well, I think it's more of a turnout uh, issue, Don. Um, every poll that I've seen shows Kathy uh, Hochul still ahead, and I expect her to win on, on Tuesday. But 
A midterm election is always difficult for the party in power, uh, whoever is the president in the White House. We have seen that over and over again uh, in recent history. So our job is to convince our uh, voters uh, to turn out, because if they turn out, then there's no doubt that we will win. Uh, but it is an uphill battle in a midterm election to convince people to get out and vote, whereas the other side is motivated because they want change at any cost. And so I think that uh, you'll see at the rally uh, tonight where I'll be with uh, Governor Hochul and Vice President Harris, you know, a real uh, strong message about how this election uh, has to be uh, put on the front burner for everybody, and voters need to turn out and vote for themselves, vote for making a real difference in their lives. And and also, I want to go back to underscore uh, what's at stake, because, you know, we just had some um, video put online by the uh, Republican senator from Utah saying that he wanted to pull Social Security and Medicare up by the roots. I mean, what more evidence do we need? Uh, the, you know, we know that the Republicans for 50 years have said they were going to overturn Roe v. Wade, and guess what? They did. I take them at their word. So if you're worried about the economy, cost of living, getting by right now, think of what it will be like if they go back to higher prescription drug prices, undo what the Democrats did, go after Social Security and Medicare to literally pull it up by the roots. I mean, those are serious threats to anybody, and we've got to make sure people know that uh, by Tuesday. I have been seeing you all over the media talking about this, giving this the same message. We just had Tim Ryan on, who's running uh, in Ohio, um, and you know we uh, spoke with um, uh, Katie Hobbs, who is uh, running uh, as well. Katie Hobbs is refusing. Some Democrats are refusing to debate and directly take on their election-denying opponents. Tim Ryan is not one of them. Is that a mistake not to do that? Look, I think everybody has to run uh, the race that, uh, you know, he or she thinks is best. And I think, uh, you know, Tim Ryan has run an exceptional race in Ohio because he is a real, you know, native uh, Ohioan. He knows what uh, the people that have elected him to the Congress year in and year out uh, believe and want to hear. Katie Hobbs is a statewide elected official in Arizona. She understands what the people in Arizona want to hear. So, yes, there are national messages. And certainly, you know, the Republicans um, are running um, their messages on primarily uh, crime and immigration uh, and the in inflation uh, argument for which they have no answer. But I think in individual states, I expect to see candidates tailor their messages. And, you know, I, I want to say one word about uh, this uh, emphasis on crime that we've seen in every ad that I I've run across from the Republicans. I find it ironic and frankly disturbing uh, that when Paul Pelosi is uh, attacked by an intruder in his own home with a hammer, uh, the Republicans go silent about that crime. You know, they're not concerned about voter safety. They're, they just want to keep voters scared because they feel that if voters are scared, if they're responding to negative messages, you know, they'll have a better chance. And that's, uh, you know, really regrettable. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it works and we can't let, uh, you know, people just hear that and believe it. Yeah. 
Listen, Ned, crime is a real issue, as you know. I mean, it's a real c concern for Americans. As the polling shows, it wasn't at the top of the list, but it is a concern, a deep concern for Americans. Look, I mean, crime should be a concern. I mean, I don't, I don't care where it happens or what it is. I, I want people to be safe. That's not the Republicans' argument, because, of course, if you look at real crime statistics, which they're not interested in examining, uh, the states with the highest crime levels are states run by Republicans. That's just a fact. We saw that, you know, very clearly in the recent debate in Oklahoma for the governorship when the Democratic candidate said, wait a minute, you know, the crime rate in Oklahoma is higher than it is in New York. And nobody wanted to believe that. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't want to solve a problem, whether it's crime, inflation or anything else. They just want an issue. You know, when given a chance to govern, they don't want the responsibility. We saw that during COVID at the very highest levels of the Trump administration. So when they talk about crime, you know, they're just uh, trying to gin up all kinds of fear and anxiety in people. Uh, they're not dealing with it. They're not trying to tackle it. And so I view it as an effort to scare uh, voters. And, you know, we're going to have to, you know, do as good a job as possible in pointing out what the real facts are. You mentioned Paul Pelosi, and I know you know him and, of course, the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Have you spoken to her? I, yes. I mean, we have uh, we, we were just horrified, Don. I mean, it just is the you know, the, the pit of our stomachs uh, were churning, both Bill and I, when we heard that news and immediately reached out. Uh, Bill actually uh, had a chance to talk uh, with Speaker Pelosi to make sure that, uh, you know, everything that was being done uh, is being done. Uh, you know, obviously, it's, it's a horrifying incident, but it, it is also, sadly, a, a real indicator of where we are in our country right now, that you would have uh, people on the Republican ticket, like the woman running in Arizona, laughing about an attack on anyone let alone an 82-year-old man whose wife happens to be uh, second in line to the presidency. You know, I am rarely shocked anymore, but the reaction that I've seen from a number of Republicans, both in person and online, uh, making fun of that attack, somehow trying to turn it into a joke, the same party that wants us to be worried about crime, you know, the hypocrisy is uh, is incredibly obvious. And I want voters to think hard about why would you give authority uh, to people who laugh at what happened to Paul Pelosi? We can have our differences over all kinds of policies. But when you really get to the human level, uh, my goodness, what what kind of person is that? And why would we entrust any power to such a person? Secretary Clinton, I want you to stick around, if you will. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to um, take on, you know, some foreign policy issues. So we're going to discuss important international headlines from Ukraine to Iran, North Korea and more with the secretary. We'll be right back here on CNN. We're back now with the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and let's open the conversation up to around the table here with Caitlin and Poppy. And I think I think it's appropriate, Secretary, uh, to start with Ukraine because we are now months into uh, this war. No sign of ending. Vladimir Putin isn't backing down. I'll ask you what I 
as the ambassador to the United Nations uh, yesterday. What, do we, what does the world do about Vladimir Putin? Well, the short answer is uh, we have to defeat him, and that means we have to continue supplying uh, the necessary military equipment to Ukraine. We have to continue enforcing sanctions and help those who, um, in our alliance, particularly in Europe, um, are suffering from the effects of, uh, you know, energy pricing and other challenges to get through the winter. Uh, and we have to make it very clear to uh, Putin that we stand with the Ukrainian people. Uh, their fight for freedom and democracy is our fight. And we're going to, I hope, uh, you know, wear down uh, Putin and make sure that uh, he has internal dissension uh, to deal with and keep him, you know, constantly uh, trying to uh, under, undermine, uh, we have to undermine his uh, hold on power insofar as that's possible. Well, Secretary Clinton, you know Putin very well. I mean, back from when you were Secretary of State, the reset of relations with Russia. And then, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that you wrote this confidential memo at the end of your time as Secretary of State telling the White House, you know, don't flatter him with high level attention, decline his invitation for a presidential summit, don't appear too eager to work together. You seem to have a really good sense of his mindset. Do you have a concern that officials seem more concerned about now than they were months ago that he would use nuclear weapons? I, uh, I don't believe that uh, at this point. Uh, I think you always have to be assessing the risks and trying to uh, determine uh, what uh, messages should be sent to Putin. Uh, he understands uh, you know, force. He understands pushback. Uh, he will go as far as he is permitted to go. I think he, frankly, I believe if uh, Trump had been reelected, uh, he expected Trump to pull us out of NATO so that his uh, invasion of Ukraine would have proceeded uh, much more smoothly. So you have to stand up to him. He is He's a classic bully. Uh, clearly, you have to continue to be assessing uh, what he might do. Um, but at this point, I, I am you know, not yet uh, convinced that he will do that. And you talked about making sure that the United States is continuing to supply Ukraine with what it needs to, to wage this battle, this invasion. One thing that the White House has held off on, they have given, obviously, billions of dollars in weapons and support to Ukraine. The longer range missiles, the fighter jets, these things that President Zelensky has asked for, is that something that you think that the Pentagon should be willing to give to Ukraine? Well, at this point, the Ukrainians are really doing well with what we have given them. They are on the offense and are regaining uh, territory that had been seized by uh, Russian troops. There seems to be uh, quite a high casualty rate among uh, the poor Russians that uh, Putin has uh, literally forced uh, onto the battlefield without equipment or training. So I think right now uh, the Ukrainians are, are more than holding their own. Uh, but again, it's a constant assessment to uh, be made by not just the United States military, but our uh, allies uh, in NATO as to what can continue to support the Ukrainians in their effort to stave off uh, what are barbaric uh, 
uh, bombings and missile strikes on civilian targets uh, by uh, the Russians. So, uh, again, I, you know, it, it's one of those issues that uh, anybody says, you know, that there's an easy answer or there's only one answer, uh, you know, probably is not immersed in the complexity of, of what's going on. But right now, the Ukrainians are doing well with what they've been given. Secretary Clinton, let's talk about Iran, if we could, for a moment. I mean, these protests and this movement for freedom, especially among women, uh, has continued past its first month. You've got Iran putting a thousand protesters plus on trial. You were secretary of state during the Green Movement in Iran. And I thought it was so interesting. A few weeks ago, that President Obama came out and, and talked about the debate internally in the White House, which, which certainly included you, about whether or not you guys should speak out in support of the Green Movement. And, and you d ultimately didn't. And he now says that that was a mistake. I just wonder if there's a lesson there right now in this moment for the Biden administration. I think there is. You know, during the um, so-called Green Revolution, we did provide uh, support, but we didn't uh, have a full-throated public uh, endorsement of uh, the protest because we didn't want... Uh, the Iranian uh, government to claim that what was happening inside of Iran was somehow instigated by the United States, by the West. We wanted it to be what it legitimately was, a homegrown uprising against the oppression uh, of the Iranian uh, regime. And so we did things like make sure that social media stayed online and, and other ways of trying to make sure that people in the streets could communicate. Well, fast forward to what we are seeing today, uh, there's no doubt uh, that this is homegrown, that this is an uprising uh, long in the making, led by young women. Um, I was told recently the, you know, the average age of the protester in the beginning was 15 years old, girls pulling off their headscarves uh, in a sign uh, of rejection of the oppression that they've been living under. A group of us um, from around the world had a uh, two full page ad in the New York Times this past Sunday, you know, calling for the world to take more action, uh, starting in the U.N. to throw Iran off of uh, the Commission on Women, which is, uh, you know, a bitter irony that they were ever on there in the first place. But I think what we're seeing in Iran um, has been brewing for many years. And young people who are connected to the rest of the world, who get to travel to some extent, uh, certainly online, if not in reality, are just not willing to live with the loss of freedom uh, that is imposed upon them. So we are speaking out. Um, it is It is something that, again, has to be calculated carefully because uh, the regime is most likely to uh, be softened up and give in to internal pressures from people saying, you know, you picked up my granddaughter on the street. How dare you? Or, you know, my my wife is at home crying because she's worried about our children. You know, something that is building up inside mm -hmm. Iran. I think it would be a mistake for there to be external uh, signs of uh, uh pressure or security that uh, came from the outside while this is still bubbling within Iran. So we have to do everything we can uh, overtly to speak up, speak out, stand with 
uh, the young women and have the media continue to cover it. I mean, I am supporting a group uh, called the Iranian Diaspora Collective, which is a, a group of Iranian Americans, some some Iranians who have uh, also uh, been based in Europe and even people inside Iran who are trying to get the word out. Things are happening literally hour by hour. So I would plead that, you know, CNN continue to cover what's going on in Iran, keep shining a bright light. I think the pressure is going to have an effect. Yeah. Listen, I think that's perfect for the um, and you're right. We, we And we will continue to cover it. And I've also been heartened by the men who are standing up for the women in Iran as well. It's very important to have allies. But if you look at what's happening um, in Iran, if you look at what's happening in, you know, all over the world, uh, Bolsonaro, whatever. Democracy is in danger all over the world, here in the United States as well. But it's all over the world, Secretary Clinton. This is a global thing that is happening. What do we do? Speak to us about that, please. Well, Don, you're right. I mean, we are in a, a struggle between democracy and autocracy. Uh, we have seen uh, Xi in China consolidate his power. So even what used to be a collective base of power is now all in one person. We're watching Putin uh, abuse and misuse that power to literally rewrite history. We saw a very close election uh, in Brazil. We're seeing the uprising in Iran. This is a time of great ferment. And it is a time when the United States should be standing strongly on behalf of our values of democracy and freedom of opportunity and equality, instead of being engaged in this culture war driven by the political opportunism of people um, on the uh, Republican side of the ledger, you know, there is no country in the world better positioned for the future than we are. The only thing that can stop us is if we get in our own way, which we seem to be doing a pretty good job of right now. You know, listening to the you know, the crazy stuff coming out from election deniers, from people who laugh at Paul Pelosi being attacked, from people who want to keep you scared, who don't have answers to anything. Uh, you know, I, I think it's time that every American say, you know what, we've got a lot at stake in pulling ourselves together. We've got some terrific opportunities because finally the Congress has passed uh, infrastructure legislation, the CHIPS Act, uh, doing something about health care and drug pricing, helping us compete in the clean energy economy. Wow, we have so much good stuff that is right on the brink of happening if we don't, uh, you know, just confuse ourselves and listen to people who don't have our best interests at heart. So the best thing we can do to lead the world in this struggle between democracy and autocracy is to get our own house in order. And I hope that, uh, you know, we'll do that starting Tuesday. I think that we're hearing now when you will be saying on the campaign trail here in New York with uh, uh, Governor Kathy Hochul and Letitia James and the, the vice president of the United States. Thank you, Secretary Clinton. We appreciate your time. And thanks for joining us so early in the morning. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to all of you. Thank you, Secretary. Nice to be able to talk to her about so many issues. We also have other news ahead. Also, this certainly making headlines this morning. Kanye West cannot sell that White Lives Matter shirt that he wore at that fashion show that stirred so much controversy. We're going to tell you why and the two men blocking him from doing it. We're also getting new details this morning about what you heard Secretary Clinton talking about there. The man who attacked Paul Pelosi with a hammer. We'll have those details for you right after this.
This is just into CNN. Immigration officials say that David DePomp, the man charged with using a hammer to attack 82-year-old Paul Pelosi, was in the United States illegally. He may face deportation, according to the Department of Homeland Security. ICE officials have lodged an immigration detainer on DePomp, who is a Canadian national, on Tuesday. That detainer, though, is not likely to affect his case, since deportations often happen after criminal cases are resolved. And according to federal records, DePop entered the country in early March at the San Isidro port of entry along the California-Mexico border as a temporary visitor. All right, so this, clothes and sneakers designed by Kanye West used to fly off the shelves, you know this, in minutes. When his decision to wear that White Lives Matter t-shirt and a string of anti-Semitic remarks forced apparel companies to finally, after waiting too long, some of them pull his gear. Now a pair of radio hosts are stepping in to prevent Kanye West from ever making a scent off gear stain by what is viewed as a racist response, obviously, to Black Lives Matter. CNN national correspondent Bryn Greengrass has more. So there are two people that have done something, copyright, they own the copyright to White Lives Matter? Yeah, this is such an interesting story because they actually were not the original owner. So I'll get into that in just a minute. But the copyright right now belongs to two black men, Ramses Jaw and Quentin or Q Ward. Now they host a racial justice radio show called Civic Cipher. And they say they became the legal owners of the trademark to the phrase White Lives Matter for its use on clothing last month in order to prevent West or anyone else from profiting from that slogan. Have a listen. As you've seen, even though he says some really hurtful, divisive, and sometimes crazy things, he has a bit of a zealot following. And every time he releases something, it sells out, right? So he's still, in the face of offending all these people, stood to gain, um, you know, a significant amount financially by putting this term on shirts and calling it fashion. So if there was something that we could do to stand in the way of that, then absolutely, let's sign up for it. Good for them. Okay, so what's super interesting here is that the hosts, again, weren't the original owners of the copyright. It was actually one of their listeners who filed for the trademark rights the same day Ye wore that shirt at the Paris Fashion Show, clearly having the sense that this could become a major issue. That person who does want to remain anonymous then ultimately handed it over to Civic Cipher. So that it's just, I, I find it so interesting when people have the wherewithal to just Think ahead like that. Talk right? about actually doing something. I mean, how do John Ward feel about holding the copyright um, to the phrase that I should note here, the Anti-Defamation yeah. League has categorized as a hate slogan? Clearly what matters is the intent, why they did it, Absolutely. for what purpose. Yeah, they say they have a huge responsibility here, right? They, they know that if that is in the wrong hands and they know that if Ye was able to go with it. It could be in a lot of the wrong hands. Yep. And uh, so they say they took that, made that decision, you know, not lightly. They thought about it for quite a while. And then they just said, we have a responsibility here to make sure it doesn't end up in the wrong it's hands. Fascinating. Thank you. It's so fascinating. Real action. Yay. <laughs> one, Don. How long are you waiting for that one? <laughs> I don't know. This came, came to mind. Okay. So in uh, 119 years of Major League Baseball, there had only been one no-hitter in the World Series until last night. How the Astros pulled it off next. Do you have any pictures of you at that game? No. Is this, is this what we're talking to Anderson about? No. <laughs> All right. In 1956, Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel was topping the charts. Eisenhower was in office. And the World Series last saw its no-hitter. Until now. Bouncing ball to third, caught by Bregman, 
Last night, the Houston Astros throwing just the second no-hitter ever in the World Series, beating the Phillies 5 to nothing to even the series at two games. Let's bring in CNN's Carolyn Mano. No hits has got to hurt for the Phillies. Oh, yeah, that's tough. I mean, Don, you remember that game in 1956. No, he doesn't. Was, no, he doesn't. I was in high Tell school. Tell us what it was like. So no, clear, I never made this joke earlier. Don made this joke. I just want everyone to know that. No, um, that was an impressive feat back in the 50s, but it hasn't happened in so many games. I mean, yeah. nearly 700 games shows you just how hard it is to do. Combined effort for Houston that made history last night. And I'll tell you what, starter Christian Javier is the story of this game. The 25-year-old's fastball is a thing of beauty, and he is one of baseball's most underappreciated stars, undrafted from the Dominican Republic. His parents, as Caitlin mentioned a short time ago, flew in before the game to see him pitch and told him, God willing, you'll throw a no-hitter, and that is exactly what he and his teammates did. Javier striking out nine over six innings, including five in a row at one point. He turned it over to the bullpen, and then from there it was Brian Abreu in the seventh. Rafael Montero, the eighth, and Ryan Presley just slammed that door shut in the ninth. So this is the Astros' second combined no-hitter of the season, and the other one also started by Javier. That was back in June as Houston evens the series up at two. We grew up watching the World Series. We know that baseball's been going on for a long, long time. So to be a part of, uh, just be a teammate on, on a team that, that did that and what Javi and all the guys did was is really special. So a moment that we'll we'll all cherish for forever. So it's down to a best of three game five tonight in Philly. The Eagles and Texans also playing in Houston tonight. So this is a double dip for Philly and Houston fans who have just been thrilled over what's happened over the course of the series. You said baseball can be a little slow, but I mean, I wish I'd watched that game. Sometimes it can yeah, be Yeah, and slow. I always think about the players who grew up watching yeah. these World Series games and just thinking maybe that could be me one day. And then yeah. you have a kid like this who has made history. is very right. special. I feel bad. The first lady, Joe Biden, obviously is a huge Phillies <laughs> fan. She was there last night. So yeah. not the game okay. she wanted. They can come back. I'm 56, but I did, I, as a kid, I watched the Astros at the, at the not Superdome, the Astrodome. Okay. In, yeah, in Houston. Oh, yeah. All yeah, right. We won't tell anybody. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you so much. Also, this morning in the world of sports, the owner of the Washington Commanders may be selling his NFL franchise, Dan Snyder, and his wife, Tanya. She's been running the team. Say they have hired Bank of America to secure uh, potential Transactions. The news comes months after Snyder was forced to hand over control of the franchise's daily operations to his wife. And also the House Oversight Committee accused him of fostering a toxic workplace and using a shadow investigation to influence the internal NFL review. Snyder has denied these accusations. Let's go to our senior data reporter, Harry Enton, with this morning's number. This has like been a long time coming, even fellow NFL owner saying, all right, it's time to sell the team. Yeah, the owner of the Indianapolis Colts basically yep. said it's time to go adios amigos. But I just want to give you an idea here of that, you know, Dan Snyder might be forced to sell the team, but he's going to make bank. He's going to make Ooh. bank, which is, look at this, look how much the team is worth now. It's worth $5.6 billion, billion. When he and the group bought the team back in 1999, it was only worth $750 million. I mean, uh, so, you know, he might have the embarrassment of having to sell it, but he's going to make bank. And I want to give you an idea that the reason why he's basically being forced to sell the team at this particular point is not because necessarily the scandal. Yes, that's part of it. But it's also because there's a ton of fan pressure to get rid of the team. Because look at the percentage of teams, the percentage of games his team won over the course of his ownership. Only 43% of their games that they won. But I think the question might be then, okay, the team stunk. He's in scandal. Why is the team worth so much money? Well, here's the reason why. The reason why is pretty simple. 
And that is Snyder benefits from an addicted public. I, I will admit that I'm addicted to football. I watch my Buffalo Bills every single Sunday. And if you look at the viewership of the last Super Bowl, get this, 112 million people watch this past year's Super Bowl. It was the most viewed program of anything by far. And the most viewed non-NFL program in 2021 had just 32 million viewers. Look at that difference, 112 versus 32 million viewers. The public loves football. Of course, there's also another scandal that, that I think we should talk about here. The NBA Phoenix Suns are also worth a ton. Owner Robert Sarver is selling because of scandal as well, racist remarks, etc. He, at this particular point, look how much his team is worth, $2.7 billion. He's also going to make bank. That's up from $401 million when he bought the team back in 2004. So you have all these owners who have embarrassment, but they're going to make a lot of money. I remember yeah. when a billion was a lot with Steve Ballmer coming in. You remember that after the Donald Sterling controversy? I, now $2 billion. Yeah, how many Power Bowls is that? Yeah. Uh, not enough to, you know, well, Don has a ticket, so he, he wants. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> he Harry. He thinks he's going to win. Thank you, Harry. Thank we, you. Really we, we appreciate so it. it's that time of year again. CNN Heroes back and we're going to unveil the top 10 heroes of the year oh we hired a new barista by the way anderson, <laughs> anderson, anderson you like? i'll have a non latte that was good You know, I can't believe it's been 16 years. CNN Heroes is back. For the last 16 years, the campaign has shined a spotlight on everyday people changing the world. CNN has shared these inspiring stories with you um, all year long. Anderson Cooper is here, speaking of heroes, to announce the top 10 CNN Heroes of 2022. He's the co-host of CNN Heroes, an all-star tribute, which, by the way, will air across CNN platforms. <laughs> Got to get, you know housekeeping here sunday december 11th at 8 p.m eastern hi anderson how do you i i love your mug your dog mug oh, oh this is all like... the presidential pets <laughs> <Is it really? laughs> well you are such a political Dork. nerd i love it it's love really it. cool it's like it's like there's like a sheep there's hamsters there's, there's, a, there's a parrot named there's polly a okay anyway we'll get back to that uh-huh. <laughs> uh yeah so uh yeah in arrows it's very i can't believe it's been 16 years it's, i know it's it crazy, is really right? extraordinary yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we are announcing the who are the top 10 CNN heroes this year. People uh, have, uh, this has been selected. People have nominated thousands of potential CNN heroes. We've rolled it down to 10. Um, and people can vote starting today at CNNheroes.com. They can vote on any device. Yeah. You can vote up to like 10 times a day. Just extraordinary people who are changing the world. Yeah. It's always amazing. I, I always say it makes me feel like crap every year because <laughs> these people are doing really great things. And what am I doing? Reading a teleprompter. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? But what it, it, to, you, we've been following them on CNN. Is there anyone that stands out to you? Oh, look, they all do. I, I don't like to name anyone in particular because, you know, uh, like you know I certainly, yeah. yeah. But let's take a look at the top 10 uh, CNN heroes. From California, when elderly dog owners can no longer care for their pets, Carrie Broker helps them stay together or finds these beloved family members new forever homes. From Nashville, Richard Casper uses art to heal the wounds of war. He's helping fellow veterans share their stories visually and vocally. Nellie Chaboy is bringing technology to young people in her native Kenya. Recycling old computers, she provides the tools and education for brighter futures. 
North Carolina innovator Nora L. Corey Spencer is training women for well-paying careers in construction while also helping seniors age safely at home. From South Philadelphia, after spending five years in prison on drug charges, Tyreek Glasgow is now providing his neighborhood long challenged by poverty and gun violence with safety and opportunity. Alaska nurse Teresa Gray leads volunteer medics into global hotspots, delivering vital care and support to those in need. Maimouna Hussein Katan is helping refugees and immigrants transition to lives in the U.S. with critical resources and support while also sharing their culture with the L.A. community. Aiden Riley brought together a nationwide network of young volunteers to tackle food waste and insecurity. They're rescuing tons of excess produce from farms to feed the hungry. From Chicago, Deborah Vine struggled to find support and resources when her son Jason was diagnosed with autism. Now she's providing services and education to African-American families and first responders. And Atlanta's Bobby Wilson is feeding and healing his urban community by teaching thousands of people how to plant, grow, and prepare their own healthy food. Wow. Yeah, each of our heroes gets $10,000. The CNN Hero of the Year, which will be nominated by, uh, which will be voted on by our viewers, gets an additional $100,000 to continue their work. And you can start voting today, cnnheroes.com. You can vote up to 10 times a day. You can actually spread your votes over your top favorites. I talked to Shirley Rains last year. She was the winner. And she helped provide hygiene, all these basic services to people who are less fortunate. And she was awesome. She was so I mean, every every one of these people is just incredible. I can't believe it. You know, we've had 16 years of just, you know, 160 just extraordinary people. We were talking about with us, uh, Dr. Gupta earlier, random acts of kindness. I mean, this is like a random their life yeah. is filled with just doing... Yeah, and these are people who are, you know, they don't have access to necessarily to money or power. They saw a need in their community and they just rolled up their sleeves and they started doing stuff. You'll be there with Kelly, right? Yep, Kelly Ripa. Kelly Ripa. We'll be there Seven cheering here. you guys on. Good to see you. Thank you. thank you. Thank you. Everyone, go to CNNHeroes.com to vote. Thanks for being with us. See you tomorrow morning. CNN Newsroom is next. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcast at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.